the man that's responsible for the title on the program. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's funny that because I, so I'd obviously just, I'd made that post that, that created yeah. it because uh, it's a phrase that I use. And then I'd seen it in a bunch of his like hashtags and things like that. I was like, is is this an overlap or did this come from what I'd said? And then I see, you know, there's the there's the whole account and stuff. And he's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all I your fault. Thought I'd use it. Yeah, exactly. Well, while we were away in Greece, we had the one year anniversary of that. So we celebrated that that was a year since the post was made. Yeah, I was going to wear my on the program t-shirt, but I just couldn't be bothered to get changed. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. So I was cool. good. They they um they did a limited release for the build, not the limited release of the um the Olympus like CrossFit um Olympus, Olympus one, yeah. shirts and yeah. and I missed out and I was good because there's six shirts and yeah, Olympus and yeah, I was there, but missed out. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, it was great. It was really good. Um, I mean, I was just amazed by what the people were doing, like especially especially the women. They're just flipping. Can I swear on this? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They were fucking incredible. Yeah. And it, like, part of the reason I was going there was because we were off the back of the Olympics, and it's been a weird couple of months coming to terms with that and being like, "What's next? Where do I find you know my reward structure now?" And so I was just trying kind of anything and everything. And, and Paul mentioned that the camp and yeah, going out there and seeing what they could do was was amazing in itself. Obviously, doing some stuff that I'm I'm not accustomed to doing as well was great. Um, but it was nice to like be nobody really in that setting. Mm. You know, people wanted to know about the Olympics and stuff, but I was I was one of the worst at what we were doing, which was re- refreshing. You know, like t- to go into go from being the guy that's running everything and that everybody comes to for the answers and all of that stuff to then just be like, you know, can you help me please? Because I'm not good at this. You know, it was, that was, that was nice. That was refreshing and, and humbling, which, you know, is I think often a good thing to get humbled and to see, okay, these guys can do burpees for days. Whereas I'm just, I'm struggling to get 20 out. I can I can blame my height a little bit on that, but <laughs> just to be like, oh, okay, well, here's several things, not just a couple of pointers. Here's several things I really need to work out because I'm not doing well here. Uh, those the women that are on the program are are badasses. They really oh, are. Yeah, yeah, and like impressive athletes, thoroughly lovely people. And then like you know, we, we did this long walk on the first day, and then this kind of what in the evening. I was just like, what. <laughs> When it went Paul crazy, and Paul was reading out, and I was like, "Hang on, nah, <laughs> I can't do seventy-seven burpees followed by more exercises than another seventy-seven burpees. Most I've ever done is sixty, and they're like carrying me, like not literally. There was a there was a part where we had to carry each other, but I did all the carrying on that. I was just like, wow. And then we did cleans the next day, and you got girls that weigh like Maddie I think it was 50 or 60 kilos and she's cleaning 90 kilos I was like if I had that same ratio I'd be I'd be cleaning 190 kilos right now <laughs> like like that's that is impressive stuff it's absolutely mental yeah <laughs> it's just yeah. it's just crazy and I think it is a really good thing to experience and put yourself amongst people who are doing things that they're just whatever your thing is, they're just, they're outside of your thing. Yeah. And you're like, wow, there's, there's all this stuff <laughs> and all these people who can do these things that nobody will ever hear about really. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, you're never going to yeah. like get the fanfare. You're never going to be on the news. You're never going to be written about. You're just getting on with it day by and, and, day. And in that sense, doing it for the love of it. Because yeah, they're absolutely. not going to get yeah. the recognition. They're doing it yeah. because, you know, and I'd say in, in a large part, I'm, I'm the same with Bob's say, because actually in the scheme of things, no one really cares. They watch every four years in the Olympics and that's great. But in terms of, you know, the niche sport of bobsleigh, no one's tuning in every week to watch it. No one's doing that kind of thing and that's fine. So I think the people that are in it to to chase popularity and to chase kind of accolades, they're in the wrong sport because, yeah, no one really cares that much. So given that we've gone post-Olympics, maybe we should start there and go backwards. Sure. Um, what do you think, Sean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I've, I've, there's a there's a couple of threads that we've kind of mentioned there that I do yeah. want to pick up on as well. Yeah. But let's let's yeah. definitely go back. Nice process. So, so the dream was to go to the Olympics as a bobsleigh. Well, I mean, I mean, the dream since being a kid, and I, I remember vividly um, where I stood and everything. I was at primary school. I was going up to the sports fields, and I was like, I just, I want to do this. And this, in that context, meant just sport, whatever it was. Um, I was, I think I was going to play a football game at that point, but you know, football wasn't ever my jam. But I was just like, I want to do this, this thing that I love doing and enjoy doing and look forward to all day. If I can find a way of doing that full time, like, and make money from it, that's what I want to do. Um, and then the crazy thing is that I, I didn't ever, I didn't, I mean, I didn't find this sport until I was 22. Um, I remember being aged 18 and, and being pretty like upset talking with my parents being like, damn, I, I missed it. I wanted to be an athlete. I wanted to do sport. And here I am age 18, not really excelling at anything. I'd done American football for the national team at that point, but that wasn't really anything. Um, and I was, yeah, I was pretty upset about it. So, you know, I'm fortunate to have had the the kind of the natural things and then also the get up and go to, to make it happen and to not, um, I could have given up at that point, I think, to be fair, and just said, okay, you know, the athlete thing didn't happen, whatever, um, and, and, and kind of, you know, go into whatever else um, or, or just kind of, I, I wouldn't stop doing sport. You know, I was still playing American football at the time. I was trying to go to uni and maybe get a scholarship in the UK, um, but actually ended up trying again trying harder and, and got out to the US to play some American football and that got me kind of moving in the elite direction um, and taught me a lot of kind of sporting lessons that I needed to know to be able to go to bobsleigh and then when I turned up to bobsleigh I was against much better athletes still am you know I would say I'm in the the lower third of that upper tier of bobsleighters in terms of athleticism and I'd, I'd put that down to just me being lazy through my teens in terms of I played sport I always engaged with sport but I never trained I never did anything like that I ate you know I, I still don't have a brilliant diet but my diet was bad as a teenager and I'm coming up against guys that have been training hard at a very high level for a decade that was what I experienced with American football and it's certainly you know the same in bobsleigh and, and still still is so I've managed to catch up somewhat but I think there's still a gulf that happened in those teenage years that I did miss yeah, I think I think it's it's evident from things things I've read and heard you speak about in the past in terms of you've just always enjoyed sport from a young age. It doesn't matter what the sport is; you've just enjoyed doing it. Um, and you know, you've kind of done a range of sports. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the American football there, but you know, you play you 
you did taekwondo to a high level a reasonably high level yeah i think the thing with with me for sport has been well first off i'll, I'll give anything a try and mm-hmm. and the important distinction there is like when i give it a go like i i'll really try you know like really really try it doesn't matter if it was just you know we as a basketball team at the school played the girls netball team to help them tune up for nationals and stuff and just like little things like that but like actually really caring and really going for it and you never kind of know what might happen and so I think taekwondo was one of those like I wasn't technically better than anyone far from it um I was just big and yeah gave a shit like got got stuck in and 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 wanted to wanted to be as good as i can um and and the the grandmaster at that point said i could probably go see olympics for taekwondo which is a funny thought now looking back on it but who knows at what point did you kind of get maybe recognize is the wrong word but engaged with the uh power to podium um sort of thing so for anyone who's who's not aware so power to podium is a talent identification program for gb sport is that right so it it covers pretty much every sport and they're on the lookout for people who potentially could have a talent at a particular sport yeah i'm not sure if it's still going as far as i I don't think it it was was a london 2012 thing yeah so we got a bunch of funding for 2012 um so so i'd actually tried out for bob say for the british team uh, as a youth so as an under 18 so that's back in 2010 and it turned out i was in this weird limbo of being too too old for the um, youth olympics but then just nowhere near good enough as an adult and so i was in this kind of weird thing i, I did a summer of kind of testing with them i never got anywhere with it uh, and then it was four years later when I'd been released by my American football team, the Sochi Olympics is back on the TV. And I was like, oh, maybe I should go and give that another go. So I, I called up the coach that, had, you know, kind of tried me out before. And I was like, look, what's the process now? How do I try out again? And it was kind of this, this thing of like, I was aware of bobsleigh, but they were able to help me because it helped them. Basically, they could get kind of um, funding and the right, processes if i went through power to podium so it was kind of yeah go go through through power to podium and come back to us that way kind of deal Mm. so it wasn't it wasn't that i was found it was more that i kind of found them and was like look i want to get i want to get a shot at bobsleigh but they'll only look at me if i come via you yeah my next question is why bobsleigh Mm. well because it looks insane yeah that (laughs) is totally true yeah, well, watched it, watched it on the Olympics always. Like, I remember, I mean, it must have been, I mean, probably it would have been Vancouver, just sat watching it like by myself. It was probably late at night, given that it was in Canada. Um, just stayed up to watch the two man, the two women, the four man, like by myself watching it. Um, in fact, I definitely will have watched the 2006 of the cheer in games because there was this really cool moment. I remember seeing the pilot jump out of the GB sled and do a backflip. And I was like, well, he doesn't look like someone that should be able to do a backflip. These guys are clearly athletic. That guy is Lee Johnston, who is now my coach and has been my coach for several years. So that was like a cool roundabout moment. But yeah, I pretty much always watched it. And it, I've, I've have always had this mentality of like, if I think something would be fun or worth doing, then I'll do it like and, and actually try and do it. Um, and so, yeah, kind of as an 18-year-old, 
without my parents knowing, reached out to the to the British team and was like, how do I try out? And that's kind of what got my foot in the door for then four years later to come back and, and try out again. Uh, but you put it pretty much it was just because I was like, yeah, I like adrenaline rush stuff. That looks pretty, pretty cool. Like I, I'd grown up thinking I'd pay to have a go on a bobsleigh. Uh, you know, I would, I would pay someone to go and do that. And never, never in like my wildest dreams would I have thought that I'd end up at Olympics for anything, but let alone that thing that I've thought was so cool for so long. That's mad. And uh, sorry, Paul, I will let you ask a question or make a comment in a second. But <laughs> I love the, win- the Winter Olympics. Like, I've always, like, far more than the Summer Olympics, I've always preferred the Winter Olympics. And I don't so know I, why that is. I absolutely love it. I'd love say it that the, the Summer Olympics are better, but the Winter Olympics are more exciting. I think as a spectacle, the summer are better, but I think that the kind of time trial nature of things and, and the margins with which generally winter sports are decided make, make it far more kind of ex- exciting. I, I always found that as a view, obviously you might be different, but like when you, when you're watching sleds and, and thus people and skiers and all of that being decided by hundreds of a second and they're all going one at a time and things like it, it's pretty nerve wracking and exciting. I think, I think um, for me, it's because, and maybe it's maybe you did mention that, it's because I'd rather do the sports in the Winter Olympics. They're more appealing to me. Okay. I, I, I don't know why. That's, like, that, that's interesting. Saying, yeah. I think for most people, the allure of the Summer Olympics is that it's accessible. Everyone knows what it's like to run from A to B. Whether they think they could do it fast or not, they know, okay, I could run from here to over there. And so they can then compare themselves to the people they see on TV. Next to nobody knows what it's like to turtle down a track in a bobsleigh. So it's a spectacle in that sense, but it's it you can't really relate to it. You know, like uh, I could I could sit you guys down even for hours on end and try and describe what bobsleigh is like, but until you get in a sled, like you have no idea. Whereas most most of the summer games, chuck this pole as far as you can, that kind of thing, people can relate to and people understand. And so I think that's possibly where you know the winter sports it's the only people that know skiing and stuff like that are generally people that live in the right climates and that are affluent enough to give it a go, which, you know, can be tricky when, when you are trying to appeal to a huge audience, people around the world that they might see it as this big spectacle. Oh yeah, that's amazing. But do they understand what's going on? Mm, hard to say. Yeah. 100%. That, yeah. I think that's a good point because I've never done any winter sports. Yeah. I mean, ski erg doesn't count, does it? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. Um, but I love watching the cross-country skiing. Yeah. Like, it's fascinating when skiing and shooting. Like, like, you wouldn't think that's a sport, but it's absolutely fantastic. But then therein lies the reason to watch it as well. Like, you know, yeah, people true. want to watch big spectacles. It's the reason a Marvel yeah. movie is is interesting. You know, it's mm. something you're watching people do something that you're like, wow. Well, there you go. So that's that's what you're watching the Winter Games for, that, that spectacle, rather than the I can relate to that. It's the I can't even imagine kind of deal. Yeah, so yeah, that's true. Mm. Bearing that in mind, there you are, you're rocking up and you're doing this thing that you can't relate to, but it looks really cool. Mm. I mean, how do you even prepare for that apart from maybe hitting a prowler and seeing how fast you can push it over 15, 20 metres or 30 metres perhaps? You, I mean, would, yeah. So training training now or like how I kind of got into well, it in the first place? Or yeah, it, it, 
it well, I suppose we can do both, but it's that what you're saying, you can relate to the Summer Olympics. Most of us have done the athletic stuff at school, mm. but that leap from, oh, that looks cool, to I'm going to try out and see if I can get to the Olympics, that's a big leap for a lot of people in terms of mindset. But you've gone, oh, fuck it, I'm, I'm diving in here, so I'm going to rock up hit as I am I don't know whether you're prepared to go to the kind of the trials initially or it was like I'll see what this is about and then maybe I'll come back and try again it's that same idea that I, that I mentioned slightly earlier of just like I'll go I'll try and I'll like I'll really try and see if there's anything there because the worst thing that happens is there isn't and you're back where you, you started, but you've got that story or whatever of the time you tried out for bobsleigh. You know, it's it, it's just a case of <laughs> go and give it a go and not being afraid of rejection or what, a, what the other side of that might be. Um, and that's pretty much kind of what I, I didn't really prepare. I did some general kind of sprint work, but I've always, I've always been fast, um, just off kind of natural ability, leg length, femur length, turnover speed, that kind of thing has always been there. But then as so often is the case, that is something then that I knew about myself. And so I always picked sports that I could run quick in. And so therein I'm, I'm training that. So it's not pure natural ability. I've always done things like I wanted to be a winger in rugby, that kind of thing. You know, I just wanted to do the, the bit that allowed me to run fast. So I've always been on the quicker side, especially for my size. And I think that's what got me recognized at that first tryout is, is running the time that I did at the weight that I was is not normal. Um, or at least it's not common. And so that's kind of what got me in the door. And then over the next several years, I had to kind of condition myself into being um, an, from an out-of-shape American football player into a, a bobsledder, basically. Um, there's a lot of crossover there, but yeah. there was also a lot of kind of conditioning that I needed to do. So for context, you're six, five, Yeah. And sit around 17, 17 and a half stone? Yeah, so I'm 114 kilos right now. Um, I don't know what that is in stone, but I mean, I've got, I've got my computer here. I can convert if we need to. <laughs> Google um, that quickly. Yeah, uh, kg to stone. Let's have a look. Because I, I, I don't even know. I know at my heaviest, I was... 17 stone nine. Okay. So at my heaviest, I was 120, which is, yeah, nearly 19 stone. Um and that was the weight that I tried out for bobsleigh at, and so I was I was that heavy, and, and I and I moved it fairly effectively. Um, so here's yeah, my I mean, question. Sorry, to, sorry to interrupt there, because I think it's a, it's a good question. Is what at that time? What was, for example, your hundred meter sprint time? So I haven't done a hundred meters in. Well, since I was yeah, you probably don't need to for bobsleigh. <laughs> so, so we're, we're, yeah. Exactly. We're timed over 60 meters. Yeah. Um, so at that point, I ran it in under seven seconds, Fuck. which um, <laughs> exactly. And at that weight, that kind of got me recognized. So my best now is a 6.82. Um, that's, but I'm still, you know, I'm still not far off that weight wise. It's just the weight that I'm carrying is now much better weight than I had back then. The reason, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there, but I thought that was a a, a good reference point for people to yeah. maybe kind of be able to understand that. Yeah, well, so if, if anybody listening does does know their stuff, so my best thirty is a three point seven two. Um, so you know that, that that's that's more what I train for as well. Is is yeah. that first thirty meters? My skill set is in getting the sled moving. 
Um, the beauty now, especially with, with Trinidad and Tobago, is we've got so many super fast athletes that if I can specialize on getting the sled moving, um, then they have ample leg speed to be able to, to carry it on once I've kind of exhausted myself. I mean, Andre, who unfortunately had a, had an injury at the Olympics, um, you know, he's a 10.2 sprinter at 100 kilos, which is just incredible. Um, and wow. that's what made him such a good bobsetter. Unfortunately, like I said, we we were both carrying injuries into the Olympics, which is a shame because we really, we I think we would have turned some heads if we weren't injured. <laughs> That is mad, and it reminds me of the conversation we had with uh, Hannah Brown, um, coaching the Paralympic um, sort of whitewater canoeing team, doing weighted pull-ups at 100 kilos. Right, yeah. Like kind of 100 kilos worth of weight <laughs> on top of the body weight doing pull-ups. And well, for me, that's that's a that's a an, an assisted pull-up, but yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. Um, it just makes you realize even so I'm not being disparaging here, but sports that aren't the top sports. Oh no, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that I'm in a niche thing. Don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> but the performance levels are just crazy. Mm. Like even outside of what people would deem as elite. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what's interesting is, is, that I that I found it kind of my biggest experience of that is that I'm in a world of other bobsledders, and like I said, I'm on the lower end of the athleticism within that within that circle, and so I have a habit of kind of getting down on myself a little bit about like how I'm doing. I have these expectations of myself in the gym and and at the track and stuff like that 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 I'm that I'm holding myself accountable to. Um, but then for example, maybe I go and train in a pure gym because I have to, you know, I'm, I'm visiting my parents or whatever, you know, I'm just around regular people and it's like, Oh shit. <laughs> like there, there aren't enough plates for me to use this leg press or, or whatever that, that might be, you know, that those kind of things that I'm like, Oh, okay. So yes, I'm in this circle of, of people, which I don't, feel like I'm at the top of but actually in terms of the scale of things I'm in that you know kind of top one percent but um as we were mentioning before about kind of getting involved with CrossFit stuff that's what's been so fun about being humbled is is kind of realizing yeah okay I'm really good at this one thing this one really niche specific thing and and there is crossover but actually there's so much other stuff that the people are doing their thing in, which is, is equally great. And I, and I want to know more about, but that's, that's the way of specialization, isn't it? Whether it's in sport or yeah. say medicine, you know, if you are the top in as a throat doctor, you're not going to know much about anything else. And yeah. the more you know about one thing, the less you know about everything else, just because you just don't have the time to focus on that. And yeah. the same with, with sport, you are, just zoned in on that getting getting the bob moving, getting your power up, your your shift into the driving seat or pilot seat, and then just piloting that that bob yeah. down, and, and that is your sole focus. 
I, I actually, I think I gave an interview before going to college in America for the American football. And I said, the reason that I liked American football compared to rugby was that it allowed me to specialize on this one position and this one set of skills. And that's what I enjoy doing um, is, is taking one thing, drilling down into the kind of nitty gritty of it and trying to do that one thing as well as I can. And that's then also why I liked bobsleigh. And, and so, yeah, I absolutely agree. Like I got to the point where I was really good at pushing this, this one sled and then moved to being a driver and had to broaden my skill set far beyond even, even sport. But yeah, like I, I like that idea of taking one thing and, and just doing it well, but I, yeah. I have huge admiration for the people that can do multiple things, but also the people that, you know, drill down into to their one specific area as well. But then I suppose there's, a, there's that awareness in yourself of I'm good at a particular thing how can I put that to best use? And I yeah. can imagine that American football having amazing speed over 10 yards is pretty useful. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> to, get, to get to the next down and to get to, you know, kind of the, the next bit of play. Um, again, again, that that's what got me recognized. So I was playing for the national team um, and realized, okay, look, if I, if I want to go any further with this, I'm going to have to, go to America like there's nothing there's nothing more for me in in GB at the moment and it's it's come a long way even in the 10 years since I did it now there's actually recruitment over here and stuff which is great um but back then I was like I'm just gonna have to put my name out there so I did a combine basically a set of physical measurements so a 40 yard sprint and and some agility work and like a medicine ball toss and stuff like that got the data from that and I wrote an email to um the head coach head of football operations and tight ends coach um, for every division one school in the country in America. I think it was about 900 emails total and just said, look, here's me. Here's, here's my physical measurements. Here's my like athletic attributes. I play American football. I don't have any film to show you, but would you consider me? Um, and, and to my surprise, got some replies on that. But yeah, it's pretty much just being like, look, I, I know that I'm... Um, better than most of this this one thing of basically just being fast and heavy at the same time i'm not crazily heavy and i'm not crazily fast but the combination of the two is rare and so yeah i was like i can kind of lean on that and and look just you know i know that i'm not going to go out and run a 10k in any good speed in any good time so i wouldn't have looked you know watched mo farah and think you know i'm going to go give that a shot uh but the sports which i know would lend to my skill set i've always you know kind of engaged with and sort of there was any anything going there basically so you've gone to the recruitment for gb mm -hmm. bobsled I'm, I'm assuming you've been taken and you've gone yeah okay come into the wider squad what happened after that yeah so i was, I was part of the development squad and really annoyingly there was this confusion over my availability because i was still living in the u.s um, and so they assumed that I wasn't available for like European races and stuff. So I was selected to go out that season. And then um, they gave my spot to somebody else because I was unavailable, with, all of which without ever asking me, because I was absolutely available, which was really frustrating and, and massively hampered my progress. Uh, because then the next season, so I was put on as a, as a, a stay at home reserve. And then the next season, I didn't get selected for lack of experience. I'd beaten a bunch <laughs> of other people, but I didn't get in for lack of experience. And I was like, damn you know like I, I should have had that experience last year 
Um, and so now I'm missing like two years and, and trying to kind of break this cycle of, I don't want to be an at-home reserve anymore. I want to be in the traveling squad. And for the first two years, I was pretty much just used as a plug-in, do a week here, a week there uh, with some pretty in- inglorious jobs. But I'd take it, you know, I just wanted to get on the ice. Um, and so it was only really in the my fourth well the third year of doing it olympic year going into pyeongchang um so i I got an adductor injury which was my first kind of major injury whilst doing bobsleigh and i actually see that as as a huge blessing weirdly because it highlighted to me in that rehab a bunch of basically like gluten core activation that i just wasn't doing um you know, it was, and, and a little bit of me was like, well, that's kind of embarrassing, you know, that I've got to this level in the British program and I'm not even using my glutes properly and things like that. But at the same time, if I can, if I can start, you know, activating properly, then there's a huge amount of gains to be made. And so I went through six weeks rehabbing the, the torn adductor. And also, side note, that summer I'd been released from the British program, as had about 10 other guys. They basically said, look, if you're not, if we don't think you're in the right bracket for the Olympics, we're not even going to carry you this summer. You're just, you're out of the team, but you can try try out again, if you like, on July 22nd. I was like, that kind of sucks. I've done three years um, and now I've just been released. But I had this try out. There's nowhere for you to go and practice either, is there? So you get cut from (laughs) a football team, rugby team, or whatever, you can go and find a local team, a lower level tier to go to, but you're just kind of, yeah, off you go. Yeah. So this was in the summer. So it wasn't like anyone was doing any, any actual bobsleigh other than maybe some push training. So it was just physical conditioning, but the six week rehab that I had took me right up to that, the July, the 22nd um, thing, but by two days, I had two days kind of gap from six weeks to, to that. And so I'd been doing all of this rehab and I went to the track to the, those two days before because I just got back from holiday and I was like, I've got to try a flat out 60 because I can't go into these trials wondering if my leg's going to be okay. If it's not okay, then I'll, I'll have to just not go to the tryouts. But if it is okay, then cool. So I set up my timing gates and ran a PB, like straight straight off, fastest oh, oh, I've ever run. And I was like, okay, so there's something to this. <laughs> a, a my leg, my leg is fine now, but also like what I'd hoped for in terms of, you know, using those right muscle groups is there. And that, that actually, that testing weirdly remains my best testing to date. I think two reasons. One, I was the lightest I've ever tested at because that was the other thing. It's like, if I'm rehabbing for six weeks, I could just lose a ton of weight in that time and go into tryouts lighter. That's going to help me run quicker. There's all these kind of manipulations that you do with your weight for Bobsley. So I'd, I'd done that. So I was light, but also it meant a lot, you know, going into, a, that was the first stage of Olympic trials. And, you know, it was my first ever taste of anything Olympic. And I, I wanted, I wanted it. It was the first time also that my parents and family had ever watched anything bobsled. So I'd been in the sport four years. That was the first time they came, they came and watched. And I think actually to them, uh, it also kind of showed that I was decent. You know, we've got this room full of really elite athletes and only three got a call back. And that was, myself and two others because I think I, I think I was the fastest at that trial um and yeah so it was a real kind of I, I needed that I needed that I, I, I wouldn't if I'd not gone to those trials and done well I doubt I'd have got to the Olympics in the end even though it was four years later I doubt I'd have got there I think I probably would have quit the sport had I not got through that gap after being cut and the injury and stuff I think I probably would have walked away so but how were you then sorry Paul 
I was going to say, were you then based in one place? Because they used to have the Olympic bobsled stuff at Bath Uni, I think. So that's, yeah, that's still there uh, to this day. So I, I'm in Loughborough. Um, my, my, I grew up in Harrogate, so I moved to Loughborough because it's kind of near enough halfway between the two whilst also having the best um, training facilities in the country. So I've been living in Loughborough, still in Loughborough, um, and I was driving down to Bath. I would, had to be in Bath two days a week. Um, so I, I bought a camper van, drove down in the morning, trained, slept in my van in the car park, trained the next day and drove home because before that I'd be sleeping in my car, which was not great. But it's kind of these these sacrifices and stuff that go under under the radar with with trying to make things happen. Was like, look, Bath is expensive. You know, you, you're looking at a hostel minimum thirty quid, and they're usually you know they can if it's a busy weekend they can get booked up. Well, I don't have two hundred quid to just drop on a hotel, um, and yeah, got we got a parking ticket for sleeping at the services that kind of thing. <laughs> it's a really interesting point that I think probably people outside. They see people in the Olympics. They see elite athletes, people who are within within the GB sport, um, in a sanctum, whatever whatever sport it is. They assume that they're all funded. They assume that yeah. they're really comfortable and rich and have have a comfortable life because of that. But, but even those that are funded, it's not like you know, it's yeah, yeah, exactly. life changing yeah. money. Yeah, it, the, the annoying thing that year was that everybody everybody that had got called back was funded um, apart from myself. So I, I came, I was ranked sixth at Olympic trials that year. And there's this uh, now infamous chart that I made that showed everybody that was at the trials, everything that they had access to. And I had none of it and yet beat seven out of the 12 people that were there. Yeah. That's, <laughs> That's just shit, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and these are, this is something that I pointed out and then I got in trouble for pointing it out not you know nothing came of it <laughs> other than me getting like shit for, for pointing it out is it so i have a rugby background and certainly when i was younger there was a feeling that if your face fitted you were golden yeah. or if you went to the right school or had the right name i don't is that a similar thing is that old boys kind of network so so bobsleigh does have a lot of that 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 style of nepotism um you know people that like those from the same circles as them um there's this big 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 military presence in bobsleigh and i and i'm not i'm not sure that, that gives anybody a leg up but it it's a type of person that they then understand so if the coach is a military person and another military person comes in they speak the same language and you know that's a specific example but let's say somebody says do this and they're like yes sir now the way i was raised uh, was kind of question everything but not in a negative sense not in a that's wrong tell me why i should in a just help me understand why you need this thing doing so that i can do it as well as i can that, that style of questioning but and, and i get it a lot of people see that as as a negative thing you know if i say why like they think, oh, he, he's challenging me. He thinks I'm wrong. No, I, I just want to understand it. And so there was a lot of clash over that style of thing with yeah. me in the program. And I don't, I don't think even to this day, like there was a big problem with one of the military guys. He ends up harassing me. We won't go into it. But like there was a big problem. And, and to this day, I don't think that actually there was any issue there other than we just don't operate in the same way. We, we just don't speak the same kind of language, basically. Yeah. 
Have you found a greater freedom now you're with Trinidad and Tobago? Oh, hugely. Best best thing I ever did. So I created my race team, which is called Axe Racing, in um, 2019. So basically, and I can give you a brief history of this whole thing. So um, in 2019, all funding got withdrawn from British Bobstate. There'd been scandals and also bad results. And they're like, look, we're pulling all the funding. In that, I saw, okay, now people are going to have to run their own teams. So you're going to have to bring in, you're going to have to bring in the money. You're going to have to sort it all yourself. There's not going to be any coaches, any of that. And I'd seen it coming. And so I'd laid the, laid the groundwork and it was like, look, I know I can do that. I know that as an athlete, I'm, I'm good enough, but I know that I can run a business, bring in the cash that's needed, do all of that organization, which a lot of athletes can't. And so I was like, okay, well, here's, here's my opportunity to kind of, take control of my destiny, get away from those th- those other people that I just don't get along with and and carve my own path with my own values and the people I can surround myself with people that share my values. And that's not to say that ours are any better. Obviously, I think they are, and you know, but I'm always going to say that. But like we can then have success because before it being this like opposing magnets and we're just going to try and force them together and to create a team. Well, that's not a team. It, you know, a, a team should be greater than the sum of its parts, but we were operating far worse than the sum of our parts. Um, so basically saw all these problems and all these issues. And as a brakeman, what I'd liked and not liked about pilots and said, okay, well, I'm going to have a go at kind of changing the game a bit and create my own team separate and just establish myself and say, look, we're here. And I, I am GB number three sled. Right. And and because there was such turmoil around the British setup at the time, pretty much there was no one to say no. New coaches came in and I'm like, hey, I'm GB3, you know? And they're like, oh, great, nice to meet you. That kind of thing. And so I essentially just established myself there, had a sled, had a team, had all of those things. And that was in large part, yes, I had my own goals, but just to get away from what I believe is severe toxicity. And, and bullying and, and just really, really horrible stuff, which, look, in their world, they might see as banter. I would say that I don't, and I would say the vast, vast majority of people, certainly outside the military, would see it as far worse than just banter. And indeed, you know, the, the, the people, that the right people in their regiment also saw it as, as too far. But it was a case of, I want to get away from that. But that in itself rubbed people up the wrong way. Because people have this idea of, no, there's a process you have to go through. You have to do this, 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 and this. Well, no, the the national team is there to facilitate the best teams in the country. And in bobsleigh, in an unfunded sport, the best team is not just the best athlete. It is the best holistic team. The sled, the operations, being safe, being responsible, being professional, presenting yourself well. All of those things contribute to being the best team the best team that should represent great britain and that's what i think they fail to understand where i i feel i had a better understanding of and so essentially built the team off that said look i'm a brand new pilot but i was a world-class brakeman and i'm going to build on that by kind of having all of those values that i just mentioned of professionalism and and being uh, responsible and respectable and all of those things to everyone that we meet and basically grew it from there. Um, then skip to two years later, we were doing well. Uh, I, I thought we were ready to progress up to the World Cup to get the experience necessary to go into the Olympic year. Um, the coaches disagreed with that. 
and in that same meeting told me that even if I qualified for the Olympics, they would give my spot to somebody else, which is, is a, a pretty shocking thing to hear from your coaches saying that. And, and I asked, I asked, can we race for it? You know, can we just go whoever's fastest goes? And they, they just said, no, <laughs> basically. It's, it's really interesting. When you were speaking there, it, my thoughts went to thinking, well, I think there's a case of two worlds colliding yeah, it's the sport world, and people in the sport world who are funded by the sport, they're funded within it without having to do anything else. The coaches, the athletes, they're funded. Yeah, and you've got the world that, as you described, correct me if I'm wrong, is more like a business world, 100%. which is having to raise your own money. And that's the one that I grew up in. Yeah, exactly. To be professional, to make people want to invest in you and what you're doing because that's yeah. that's all you're doing in business really aren't you you're getting to be able to buy your product invest in what you're doing yeah it seems to me that those two worlds clashed and they and they clash all the time throughout sport yeah. and i think that's the issue i've had this discussion a lot like who do you get to run a national federation because we've seen all these problems with even you know british cycling which is one of the most like um reputable kind of branches that we have but they're not without issues who do you get to run these things is it ex-athletes that know the sport and the people intimately but maybe don't have a clue when it comes to a boardroom meeting or bringing in funding or anything like that or do you bring in a a a businessman a, a ceo that knows those kinds of things but doesn't actually know the sport and so we'll treat athletes and and stuff as as commodities and it's a really tough balance to find somebody that knows both of those. I think I've tried to strike that balance myself and now I'm literally running my own federation. Um, and I, I dare I say it, doing a decent job of it, but I think it's it's a, a really tricky balance to find people that can do both. I think I'm fortunate in, in the sense that, you know, my, my parents are successful business people and I grew up around that, learning those lessons of like, look, his dad's still at the computer from the night before and I'm going to school and he's still there grafting like, mm-hmm. and learning those business kind of acumen from, from my parents. Um, but then also being in, in the body of, of a competent athlete. And so I've, I've been able to combine mm-hmm. those, but like I've said a couple of times now, I, I've never been at the upper end of the sporting talent, but I think I've been able to make up for that with the other things that I can bring to the table. And it was only when the whole structure collapsed that those extra skills became worth anything. Because in a fully funded program with coaches and all of that, they're going to do whatever they're going to do. And you can't, as an athlete, you you literally can't say anything against it. Otherwise, they'll just cut you. Whereas now in the wild west of nobody's got any money, it comes down to who can do all of those other things. And I was able to do it better than everyone else. Yeah, so I had a, a neighbour, they've, they've, they've moved now, they, they lived across the road and they moved in and I noticed they had a car, or they had two actually, they had two cars, and they had the TAS logo on the side, you know, T-A-S-S, yeah. which is the, sorry, is it, it's, a, it's a sponsored athlete programme, I can't remember, yeah. you know what? I'm going to look up yes. the Talented Athlete Sponsorship Programme mm-hmm. with a little star next to it, and that was on the back. And I was like, oh, you know, that's interesting. What's, what does that mean on your car? Because it was on the side. So, oh, they were hockey players. They were in the sort of, um, they weren't quite at the level, but they were working towards yeah. it. Um, you know, <laughs> I was like, oh, well, you get given a car? And they're like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and to, to get, 
Yeah, so, right. sorry, you get given a call, yeah, yeah, to, to get, yeah, to, to get to trainings, to get the matches and things like that. It's like, oh, that, oh, it must be really good. You're going to like, you know, you, are you going to be in the national team, go to the Olympics, et cetera, et cetera. That's what the question was. I was like, oh, we're nowhere near that. Hmm. But if we, <laughs> if we say anything about that, because they knew that they weren't going to get there, they just knew. Yeah. Then we'd lose our car. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, I think what, what you just said, that's kind of a reality of athletes who don't necessarily make it to the level where they're on the TV and they're famous and people know the name, but they're very, very talented and have a lot of skills and ability. For sure. But I mean, those programs are great. Like one of my teammates yeah, yeah. Yeah. With, with GB, he, he came through TAS, but you, you're right. It, it's this tricky thing of, of almost at that, at that age as well, having to play this game, which is removed from sport in order to, to keep the, the things in the, in let's, let's call the real world sweet. You know, you still have to, you have to pay your bills. You have to have somewhere to live. You have to have all of those things that have to be secured before sport. Now it's great when those two can facilitate each other, but you have to make sure those things are in place. And, and so, of course, someone's going to do whatever they need to do to keep that. So our funding went back, you know, we're talking six, seven years ago now when I was part of the GB and it was funded. It came down to those tests that I mentioned, which was a 60-meter sprint and these things, a roll bob, which is essentially a bobsleigh with wheels. It's pushed by one person and it's a, it's a metric which is taken. And this weird five consecutive bounds, like a bunny hop thing, which was supposed to test plyometric power, but it was also always a bit odd, that one. Anyway, you've got a combined score across those um, six exercises, and that defined whether you got funded or not. And so there was people, there was people that would cut weight, and I mentioned before that I, I even did it, um, would cut weight loads in the summer to be good at those tests which is the absolute antithesis of what a good bobsledder bob should be doing. You're trying to be as heavy as possible. But because yeah. it came down to those tests, everyone, including myself, would come in as light as you possibly could so that you'd be better at those tests because that's what was needed for funding. Not being a good bobsledder, but being good at that one test to remain funded. So really successful international teams that I can think of, again, probably based in the England World Cup squad, the New Zealand All Blacks, they, they were looking to get rid of from their team the energy takers. They wanted the energy givers. The New Zealanders, the All Blacks have a, a no dickheads uh, mantra. So they take that into account alongside the metrics you've just kind of mentioned for whatever their sport is. Yeah. Was there no consideration for personality, whether this person, because you can train like Tarzan and play like Jane. Mm. Yeah. There's, uh, there was there was an element of that, um, uh, but I don't think enough of it was was um, done when forming teams. So you know, I was one of those people that found myself on the wrong side of it because people didn't like me. There was one other guy again, won't name names on a podcast, but like famously didn't get selected for the Olympics, not for lack of athletic ability, but because he just kind of wasn't you know bonding well with the team. He ended up going to the next one, which is you know great. So you can kind of say it, say it now. Um, but within the teams, there wasn't enough of that. I, I think because you didn't know until the night before who you'd be sliding with the next day, and and that's a really weird thing when you're dealing with hundreds and, and indeed thousands of a second. 
you like those little margins knowing each other and stuff are, are so important and that that was again when i created my team it's like look there's there's obviously a minimum standard for athletic ability that we need to have you can't just pull in anyone off the street but we need to all be friends and that that no dickhead mentality is is right but in the same breath other teams would call me a dickhead right and yeah. so it's it's kind of it's a relative dickheadness. Exactly, yeah. So it's like I would consider them that and wouldn't ever have them on my team, but likewise, they wouldn't ever have me on their team. So it's about creating these teams of like-minded people. Because when we've gone away, like we've had some of the best times as a group because we're competing as bobsledders, but then we get back to the house and we're four really good friends. You know, in, in the first two years of it, unfortunately, that's kind of had to be break, broken up with with my move and stuff, but um yeah, it was this weird idea that people were kind of like, why are you hanging out together in the off season? Like, why are you doing all this stuff? Is it team building? I'm like, no, no, we, we're just friends. Like we're actually friends that are now doing bobsleigh together. And we saw in that instance, like how much better we were able to perform when yeah. you can go back to the house and you're not, because so, so often the only thing you have in common with your teammates is bobsleigh. You don't know each other. You don't know each other's people. Chances are you don't really have many like interests in, in common. Whereas actually when we went away as friends, we would do our bobsleigh and we'd come back to the house and we wouldn't, we wouldn't ever mention it. We wouldn't talk about the track. We wouldn't talk about performances or anything like that. And that's so necessary. When you're living together for four or five months of the year, like if the only thing you have is bobsleigh, it's, it's tiring. Like you yeah. get back to the house and still the only thing you're talking about is runners or what happened in this corner or nah because then you're living it and it becomes so heavy and it consumes your entire life that it's miserable whereas actually if you're around people that you like and want to be around not only at the track are you doing it for yourself and them because if you're in a team of people you don't care about you're only there for yourself realistically um whereas if you're in a team where you genuinely care about the person in the back of your sled or the person you're lining up next to you are going to book you are going to perform better that's any sport it's not yeah. just that's any sport you are going to do better because you care and so that was this whole thing of like the sum of its parts we we created a team that was far greater than the sum of its parts we were performing much beyond our own athletic ability for sure because of being a team and it only takes looking at the big teams like canada and germany I mean, germany won everything there was to win at the olympics and they are teams that operate together as teams you see the best guy in the world, Francesco Friedrich. And it's a big deal when he signs a new athlete to his team. So it's not like, oh, here you go, Francesco. Here's four of the best athletes. No, he has created that team and they're working together and they're the best in the world. And that's no coincidence. Like there's no top teams that are just like chopping and changing. And here's the best players. And you see it in every sport. You know, the, the England football team that had so much success was because actually they said, right, it doesn't, we're not just going to plug together all these good athletes. We're going to create a team. We're going to, you know, around a good manager, around good like leadership that actually is better. And just the same as you said with, with New Zealand rugby, they've created a team which care about each other and have like personalities rather than trying to jam athletes together and force them to perform well because it just doesn't happen, especially when the pressure's on. I think I think a lot of people forget that, and I'm going back to this the, the business analogy that we talked about in terms of the work life balance because professional athletes that's the that's that's a job. Mm. You also have a life outside of that. Yeah, I think when people watch sport, it's like oh they're an athlete. Yeah, that's the job. 
Yeah. <laughs> they actually have a life outside of that as well. And they need all of the things in life that everybody else needs. For sure. It's it's something that, so when I got released by that American football team, so Colorado State, it it rocked me. It really rocked me. And I, and I realize now looking back on it, it's because my entire self-worth was wrapped up in this sport. It was my personality. It was the thing that people knew about me. It was the thing that I was doing. It was the thing that I had success in. And so it was me. I was American football and American football was me kind of thing. You know, was, we, were, we were interlinked. But getting released from that team and seeing how hard that hit me made me realize, okay, with this bobsleigh thing, I need to be detached from it. And again, that's just another thing that people have used or tried to weaponize against me. Oh, he doesn't care. No, I do care. I really care. I think it's evident that I care, but that I'm able to switch that off and just be a person the rest of the time. I mean, the listeners can't hear, but behind me, there's like stacks of Lego and little collectibles and stuff like that. that I readily admit it's nerdy, but it means that I have a personality outside of bobsleigh, which is super important, I think, because I could walk away from bobsleigh now and actually three or four hours of training a day right now. I mean, last year it was ball to the wall, 14 hours a day kind of thing. But like I could walk away from bobsleigh now and still have a huge amount of things that I get fulfillment from. And, you know, a, a range of like, you know, friends and hobbies and interests that, that I can easily lean on to have a very fulfilling life. But that's, I think, because I've made a conscious effort to do that after having not had that when I got released from American football. So I genuinely pity the people that don't have that because they get mm. trapped in sport because they, they maybe try retiring. You see it all the time that people say, I'm going to take a year out after the Olympics. They take a year out with the idea of trying something else and then inevitably come back to it. And I would wager that nine times out of 10, that's because, oh, actually they don't have any reward structure. They don't have any interests or things to, to lean on. And that's especially bad for people that get injured. You know, if you, you could have an injury and it's, it's completely taken out of your hands, and I think certainly athletes that have been doing it since they were kids, you know, football players and rugby players that you've had to have been doing it for years, you then pull them out of that sport through no choice of their own. And it's it's hard because they don't have anything to, to lean on. Nobody understands what they're going through. And, you know, family and friends don't know what they're on about. Other athletes are probably, they may well still be doing the thing, you know, if their friends are in the team still, you're like, how do I talk to them about like leaving the sport? And you have nothing to lean on in that situation. And so you like, I think you need to have things if nothing else to distract yourself with so that sport isn't this whole thing. I mean, I went to, again, back when I got released from the football team, I, I created two Instagram profiles. One was, okay, this is bobsleigh and this is my bobsleigh friends and my sports friends and they've become interspersed over, over, over the years, but creates an entirely different one that I don't follow any sport on. It's mm. just stuff that I'm interested in that is removed from sport. And, you know, on, on there is, you know, pictures of me with animals and stuff like that, whereas I can't post that stuff on on my professional pro profile because it's, it's not on brand and it's not what sponsors want. But I, I feel like there's sport me there and then there's personal me over here. And it's just a little thing. It's an Instagram profile, but it, across a bunch of different things, I made that conscious decision to say, here is me, the person, Axel, and here is me, Axel, the athlete. And so when the sport goes away, I still have Axel, the person that's pretty fulfilled with what he's doing. Yeah, We've talked about that before, haven't we? A noun versus a verb. Yeah. That's exactly yep. what I thought about as well in terms of the, yeah, be a, be a verb, not a noun. Yeah, no, for sure. And it's, 
it's a scary thing because I've seen it with with my teammates and I've, I've kind of tried to teach them that lesson that I learned firsthand with American football and I'm so grateful that I did. Um, but yeah, like there's there's people in it now that I, it's a weird phrase to use, but I, but I do pity them because they have this idea that, well, not even an idea, it's a reality that, that bobsleigh is all that they've got, all that they've got. And, and I think to an extent that's necessary to have success. Like to, to reach the top, it, it probably has to be. But how many people get to be the best ever? One, <laughs> really, yeah. to be the actual best ever. Yeah. And and so, I mean, you've you've done your research, so maybe you do. But I, it's a common thing that I say to people: is like if I mention the name Francesco Friedrich to you, does it mean anything? And to almost everyone on the street in the UK, it would mean absolutely nothing. Now he's the best to have ever done bobsleigh. And it's, it's not even close. He's won everything uh, and everything in between. So he went between Olympics without not winning a race, something crazy like that. And so he's won everything, but, but nobody knows who he is. And he's the best to have ever done it, certainly in our sport. But th- it, think about all the athletes that winning is everything. Winning is everything. Now, winning is important, especially in sport. It's, it's the name of the game, but it's not everything, I don't think. Because if it's everything then when you lose, you lose. Like your whole your whole existence is a loser. So if you can't separate the sport from you, then yeah, great when it's going well. But then when it stops or it starts not going well, then you're going with it. Now, I, I agree that I think it's necessary to feel like that, to be the best ever. I think it has to be everything. But for every person that reaches that, think of the thousands that don't. And how bad that must feel to be a person to whom winning is absolutely everything and to not win. That's a scary place to be. And I'm glad, I'm glad that I, I feel like I have the perspective now to be like, okay, I have my own personal victories and my own personal goals, but that actually I can be realistic with those and be happy regardless. You know, I think that that perspective it reaches all levels. It yeah. reaches the elite level, the the tip of the spear, the people. You know, when you when you actually said, in terms of the, the 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 one person who is at the top of the sport, my first the first name that popped in my head was Alberto Tomba, the right. uh, downhill skier. Okay, <laughs> and probably, prime example. No, no. Probably, yeah, probably. You're too young. That's why. Okay. Probably the reason why I love the Winter Olympics because. When I was young, just watching him <laughs> go down, go down a ski slope, it was I was just in awe. But anyway, going back to just people on a normal day to day, if they fail on a lift, or if they don't hit, you know, the time they were looking for in a CrossFit workout, for example, that's not the end of the world. No, you know, there's but- far more. There's far more there than that. So I, I have this um, another kind of thing that I now try and literally live my life by. So we, we were playing this game once. We were just waiting around. Can't remember what for. We're trying to throw a massage ball into the top of a foam roller from a distance, whatever it is. It's just a game of trying to get that in. And I remember two, two guys, and I remember who they were, and they're getting so competitive over it that everyone else just was like, yeah, nah, I'll go and just sit over there. <laughs> and they're still going at it trying to do this thing that does not matter at all. And, and everyone was just like, that's obnoxious right and so in that in that moment watching it i was like i wonder if i've ever been that guy to somebody else that's been so competitive 
to the point that it's obnoxious and they don't want to be around me because I don't want to be around that person right now. So have I ever been that to somebody else? And the answer is almost certainly yes. And so in that moment, I was like, oh, okay, I need to, I need to again compartmentalize these things because what is the goal there? The goal is to have fun. It's to pass the time and it's to have fun. And let's say you go bowling or you go play mini golf with your friends or on a date or whatever it is. What is the goal there? The goal is to have fun, to be around people, to, to have a good evening. The goal is not to win mini golf because who cares? The goal is not to win bowling. It is to have fun. Now, those two things can, can exist together. You can have fun and you can still win. But if you're winning at the expense of having fun, what's kind of what's the point yes you have to make sacrifices at the upper level of sport but for the most part and for most people coming having a good life and having fun and, and being engaged with the people that you're around and all of those things are so much more important than the result that actually you need to like put that first and the sport second and find a way of making them coexist so Johnny Wilkinson has talked about this a lot because right. during his England career and leading up to the World Cup, it was all about winning. And he says, I didn't take enough time to enjoy the moments. It's all about the, the, the winning. And he's now working a lot harder on trying to enjoy the moments. And he talks about just living this moment right now. Not two minutes before, not two minutes later, yeah. just in that moment and, and just being. And I, I think certainly I've been that person that wants to win and I probably have been obnoxious. But with age, perspective has certainly helped. Yeah. I was the person that had my identity completely wrapped up in a sport until injury came along and wiped that out and I was lost for a long time because everything was so tightly held with that sport but looking back now and having that perspective apart from my family which I hold very close to me then actually probably everything else I can take or leave I'd be sad not to do exercise yeah but it it wouldn't be the end of the end of the world yeah no definitely and uh, you're right like it, it comes with age, it comes with context, it comes with like learning those lessons. I think, like I said, that I'm in a unique position, having already experienced it, ha having been rocked by the American football and, and actually having to rebuild myself off that, I realized, okay, what would I like to be different next time, mm. right? And, and, and again, it's not to say that it's always going to be fun. Like last year, the, the build-up to going away and, and creating an entire federation, an entire team, recruiting athletes, trying to bring in sponsors, all of that in a matter of months just to get on the ice, that was not particularly fun. It was long, very hard, very lonely days. And if you ask me in that moment and or looking back on it, was it fun? No. So there is a sacrifice that I had to make to, to create this thing. But now that's that's created a, a, something that I can live with. I am now an Olympian. I've achieved what nobody else has ever done, and we've created. We got we um, got a national record in the same time, and two guys are now Olympians because of because of what we built, right? But overall, I'm I'm perfectly happy, kind of with or without Bob Say. I think it's those sacrifices were absolutely worth it. And I knew they would be worth it whilst doing it um, because it's something that now I can carry with me the rest of my life. But I would say the overall experience has to be being happy, 
overall, you know, like being fundamentally happy um, and, and being fundamentally like, you know, just a good person that you're happy with when the lights are out and nobody's watching and it's just you in a room, you know, are you happy with the person that you are? Yeah, absolutely. So did you, because you had all that pressure, because you brought the team together, you had to get the sponsorship, you had to get the other team members in. Did you actually get to enjoy the Olympics or was it a sense of relief? And then was there a sense of hollowness having reached this massive goal, getting to the Olympics, post-Olympics? I think the relief and the enjoyment were together. So uh, one of the best results I ever had was just this 11th place in the Europa Cup, which really doesn't mean anything. That was back when I was with GB, but it was like I was relieved that I'd shown actually kind of the level that we were at at that time. And I was really excited about that. So that happiness and relief were were together. But it, it was this interesting thing. We actually knew from December the 17th that we'd qualified. Uh, done the maths, figured out, right, we've qualified. So we knew for a good month before it was announced, okay, right, look, we're in. Now we just have to prepare for it. So through that kind of month, I was I was relieved. I could kind of sit back and think, right, okay, done it. Now I can put my mind at the Olympics and focus on, yes, doing well, but, but enjoying that. And it's a weird thing because actually I went into it fully expecting it to be underwhelming because there weren't going to be any fans and – my experience of things that you really build up in your head is that it's never as good as it seems. I think everybody's felt that way from a holiday to whatever it might be, that it's never as good as you think it's going to be. And so I was genuinely going in expecting it to be a bit disappointing. It sometimes is though. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, for sure. Sometimes. And, and, and in that sense, the Olympics was absolutely everything that I'd hoped for. It's, it was the upper end of what I was hoping for. So it, it, if I'd had those lofty aspirations, it would have met them. But actually, I went in expecting it to be like, the food might be crap, the accommodation might be crap. Like You see all these horror stories from other Olympics, like all of these things, there's not going to be any fans. Maybe it'll just feel like any other race and I'll feel really empty from it. But actually, it was absolutely everything that I'd hoped for. The opening ceremony was incredible, even though it's, you know, only lasted about a minute, us walking out. It was, it was amazing. The race itself was amazing. And I think a part of that was we, we knew where we were in the world at that point. You know, our lofty aspiration was for a top 20. Our gold medal was getting there. So we'd already won our medal, basically. <laughs> you know, we'd, we'd won by being there. Then the goal was just, okay, don't come last. You know, we're always going to be compared to Jamaica because it's another Caribbean sled. So if we can, we'll beat them, but I'm not going to be super disappointed if we don't. And so actually went into even the race with little to no expectation. I just had pressure on myself to do well. You know, I just wanted to drive it well and not cock it up and, and hopefully some results will come of that. And we absolutely did that. You know, we, we, we beat the two sleds that we, we had our eyes on. And after the first day, we were sandwiched between Russia and the USA. Well, a Trinidad and Tobago sled is not supposed to be between Russia and the USA at all. We're a tiny little Caribbean island. They're two absolute powerhouses of sport and the world in general. And so all of those things were so rewarding because actually expectations on my, myself and on us were, were low in terms of everybody, the news and everybody, they expected us to come last. That was the expectation. So there was no outside pressure. There was only ever going to be inside pressure. And really, there wasn't any inside pressure either. I wasn't holding a lot of pressure on myself. I just wanted to do well by me 
regardless of where that put us in the world, I just wanted to, to drive it well. And I drove it probably better than I've ever driven. Right. So I was happy coming out of that. And then when the results kind of came, uh, came later, then yeah, great. All the better. So to answer your original question, yeah, it was absolutely, it was everything that I hoped it would be. There was no hollow feeling at all. Um, what was really weird was that because of COVID, we had to leave within 48 hours of, of the race. So I was sat at home two days later watching the four-man race on my TV in my lounge against all the – because we were one of only two teams that only did two-man. So every other team that we'd raced was doing four-man. And I'm in my lounge watching them at the track that I was just at, all the guys that I was just with That's whilst surreal. in my lounge. And that was so bizarre. <laughs> yeah. Because so, part part of the Olympic experience for athletes, as I understand it, is the Olympic Village is enjoying the company mm. of other nations. Yeah, you didn't really get. The, yeah, we, we had no socialization at all. So nah. just go from your room to food or your room to the track, and that's it. We and because we were a team of three people total, uh, there wasn't even like we're meeting other members of the team. At least in the G in the GB house or the Canada house or whatever, they have a whole house who are in their bubble that they're allowed to interact with. We had nobody. I had my roommate, and the the other guys were in a different room. And that was it. And we didn't really have anywhere we could sit and chat with them or anything. So there was no social interaction, which is disappointing for sure. But we'd known that. Like this is this was two years into the pandemic. We knew yeah. that we weren't going to have fans for years. Um, you know, from the season before, it was becoming evident that the Olympics was going to be impacted. My hope actually had been that it would be delayed a year. Uh, first off, it would have given me another year to get more prep, especially with the with the TNT thing. Um, but also, it, pro it would have meant that fans could have come. Anyway, that didn't happen. But we knew that it was going to be impacted. So my expectations going in, I knew there wasn't going to be any fans. So it wasn't like that was a disappointment. It was just the reality of it. Whenever I'd like visualized the Olympics, which for the 18 months prior, it had been without anybody there. And yeah. so... The, there wasn't a feeling of that lacking because we knew it was going to be the case. What was great was that the opening ceremony had people. Um, it had uh, several thousand, can't remember what it was, but enough for the for the stadium to be buzzing. So that was a good thing. And then the track, the actual bobsleigh track, was incredible. Like the architecture and stuff, it was amazing. And so actually sliding that felt like a spectacle, which I think was was really cool. That that sliding that felt so different to any other track, and it felt bigger and it felt more alive and exciting. That that kind of made up for the fact that there wasn't anybody there. Um, if it had been one of the tracks that I've been to before or anything like that, then I think that would have significantly taken away from that experience. I hadn't been to that track. I hadn't seen it in any other sense than with all the Olympic branding and it being so big and all of that. Um, and then uh, at the bottom of the track, they had all of my family on a, on a Zoom call that I could go up and see it on a board. And so, you know, at least I got to see them and kind of share that moment. That's the biggest thing. I, I wish they'd been there. That would have really been special. Um, but again, we, we knew it. We knew it from the off that, that it wasn't going to be the case. So it wasn't really that anything was lacking for me. But I think for the people that have been to other Olympics or maybe didn't have, you know, hope that there would be people to whatever expectations they may have brought in. Um, I think it probably was was pretty rough on them to not have those things. But again, you know, I, I'm just really fulfilled by the whole process. It was it was everything that um, everything that I wanted, everything that I needed and and hoped it would be. Was was it weird? Sorry, maybe this is just a personal question. Mm -hmm. Was it weird going to China? 
during the pandemic? Um, yes, <laughs> it, it was. It was like something out of a movie. When we first landed, was bizarre. I mean, unfortunately, we were at the bottom end of booking flights because we had to wait. We were a, we were a small Olympic committee. We had to wait until the announcement, and by which time all the good flights have been snatched up by the other Olympic committees and by media and stuff like that. So our journey was seventy two hours uh, from Calgary to the Olympics. So not the way you want to be turning up to the biggest sporting event is is you know cramped up because. Obviously, I don't fit on planes either. Anyway, we, so it was we were kind of delirious anyway. Yeah. And you're so you didn't, in this... you didn't you didn't get first class flights. No, no. <laughs> I think again, just a little quick side note: people don't realize how much you actually have to pay for for the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, originally, I, I had to buy all of our team's kit. For example, now I was wow. reimbursed in the end, but I had to buy all of our team's kit. And first class would have been seven and a half grand per athlete. Well. Sorry, can't afford it. <laughs> and, and that's something that we directly, as athletes, would have had to pay for ourselves. It's not an, that's not an Olympic committee thing. That is a, athletes have to pay for that. Other Olympic committees, completely different. USA have their own plane. Great, good for them. We didn't have that. Um, but yeah, so we, we turn up there and the whole airport is deserted. There's nobody. There's no other flights. There's no freight, nothing. The whole airport is closed apart from us. And we're being kind of shepherded through these places with, with big... Um, you know, temporary walls up and we're basically just being brought through this corridor. And it feels like something out of Children of Men for anybody that's seen that, you know, not not nearly as nasty, but it, it did feel eerie because you Great can't film. see anybody's faces. They're in Great full film. head-to-toe hazmat gear, you know, like full suits. So they're waving at you, some of them are, but you can't, you know, they, 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 they're like uh, NPCs for, for the video gamers. They're, you know, like like the minions from the movie that's just come out because you, you can't, they're like characters. You can't tell that that's a person and you're being shepherded to do this and then to do that and then to take this test and then all of those things. That was, that was really surreal. But in the village itself, apart from, you know, the fact that um, the people that are helping you have broken English, it could have been anywhere because we're in the mountains we're only surrounded by athletes other athletes most of which we already know because it was the sliding sports um and so it's just regular you know it's athletes you you know athletes and the helpers for the most part are completely covered in in um health health and safety stuff so you don't see them anyway so it was was very game-like you're walking through this experience uh with people around but that you're not seeing anybody's faces. You're not actually interacting with anybody other than the people wow. you already know, but you're there to do a job. It's surreal. Really surreal. Uh, really so surreal. Is, Milan, is Milan now the goal? The whole what's next thing is, is, a, is an interesting debate in itself because, um, and, and it's been a tough one over the last couple of months. I've gone from, yes, absolutely, Milan, we're going to smash it, top 10, that kind of thing, to imagining myself at the top of a bobsay track and being like, fuck that. I don't want to be there. I'm done. You know, and, and I've had both of those, both of those emotions in the last couple of months. And I think the tricky thing is because the Olympics was everything that I wanted it to be. And it's everything that I hoped for. What more do I need from the sport? Where, where do I, where do I find that motivation to put in as much effort as it's taken to get to this point Again, because it's flipping hard and there's people counting on me and it's it's financially um, hard, you know, all, all of these things. Where do I find that motivation from? And so it, that's been a real battle over the last couple of months. And I've wanted to let that decision come naturally and, and allow it to come naturally. That actually, if, mm-hmm. if, the, if I just continue with those feelings of, of 
almost resentment at times towards Bob saying, well, then I have to acknowledge that and step away equally. If that fire reignites and I want to keep going, great. And where I am at the moment is let's do another year and see how it is without the burden of the Olympics. And I say burden, it, it, it was never a burden. It was, it was a source of, of inspiration. But without that, can I enjoy the sport just for the sake of the sport? Or does it not mean anything to me without this goal of the Olympics, which I've now accomplished? Mm. And so it's, it's this, it, we're, we're in a state of flux at the moment. And I sincerely hope that it's keep doing bobsight because I've, I've enjoyed the experience overall. I know how much it means to other people and I really want to keep doing it. But like we've said throughout this podcast, I'm not going to do that at the expense of my enjoyment of, of my life. So would you, would you consider being the head of the team as opposed to a member of the actual on ice team? Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and I'd love to say yes. Uh, but the answer to that is no, not at all. I think yeah. I think the sport can be so toxic, and and you know maybe I've seen the worst of it. I think there's I think there's a very good chance that I've actually only been involved with the absolute worst the sport has to offer at times. Um, but unfortunately, that's made me a, a pessimist, and so I don't really want to be embroiled in that unless it's also bringing me fulfillment and things like that, which I'm not sure that I'd get as a coach. I don't, to be honest, I don't think I'd be a very good coach. Um, so not, I, maybe not a coach, but an organiser. Sure. And, and what, what I've, what I've said to anybody, including while I'm in the sport from TNT, even from other nations is like, look, if you've got any questions, come ask me, I'll gladly yeah. point you in the right direction. And I would gladly mentor a team and help them achieve the things that, that I've done and, and hopefully even better. But I wouldn't want to lead that and have the, I guess, have the responsibility of that uh, on me because uh, that would be all the parts that I don't like without yeah. any of the parts that I do like. Mm. So I'm going to jump way back. Mm -hmm. I'm just looking at the time, maybe an hour, an hour and 20 minutes ago. Depends on when, when I choose to, <laughs> cut out the preamble and sure. start start the podcast for real is I mentioned I had a couple of questions and a couple of thoughts around the Olympics and you started going down the route of the I'm going to put words in your mouth here Axel but the Olympic hangover yeah and the sense of nothing mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> And it's so, very real. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you've had all of that build-up, and it sounds to me that you've had all of the build-up in a very short space of time. You've pulled yes, everything. Then. Yeah, yeah. You've, <laughs> yeah. You've, pulled, you've pulled everything together really quickly. You've found the money. You've found the team. You've, you've done all this stuff, and you've got yourselves to China. You've got yourselves to the Olympics, and then you're back home quicker than you can even blink mm. and you're watching it on TV before the Olympics is even finished. The Olympics that you've competed in and it's still not finished and you're back home. Yeah. That's crazy. That, that has to mess with your mind. And it, yeah. I think, um, cause you mentioned it happened quickly and it did, you know, we created uh, Well, I say we, uh, not to my own touch on it. I created this 
entire team, entire federation, everything in six months, got us to the Olympics, done. That's very quick. But actually, bobsleigh-wise, it's been an eight-year process that we've outlined. But truthfully, it's been a a lifelong process to get to that point. So it's been quick and very long at the same time. Um, But yeah, it's it's a really, it's a hard time. Um, What was particularly bad uh, was that within a week of coming back, uh, I got broken up with. Um, so, you know, I, I went from having, you know, both the sport and this relationship that was, that were both kind of exciting and, and, and filling my, filling my world that actually completely eviscerated once, once I got back. And so in the first week or two, I hadn't really, I hadn't really felt any, any kind of void, um, because, I was excited about the future. I was excited about a ton of other stuff. And you know, I won't go too much into that because it's obviously very personal, but um, yeah. actually I was still excited about, about the future. And then, you know, that planted me then in the past again, this, the, the, the kind of the, the relationship going away. Um, and and that, that was, that was certainly hard, but in the, in the weeks of coming back. So I think my, my feelings towards the sport in general, so it, let's say the, the breakup had never been an, an issue. I think actually it, it probably wouldn't have been a huge problem for me because again, I just, I just felt so fulfilled and so proud and so happy um, that my only feelings towards it were positive um, and, and are positive. So it wasn't like a, um, there kind of was no negativity around it. Now there's this weird thing now that I even had a pang of it today that you, you look at those pictures and look at those memories in your mind and it's so good that it's like it's almost sad now because you're like, damn, that was a that was a really high peak, yeah. and this is something that I've that I've kind of had a conversation with a, with a b- bunch of people about that. Lucky me to have had such a peak, right? You know how how many people get to realize their dream, their lifelong dream, mm-hmm. next to nobody, and I and I have. And, and I've had that huge peak, which has meant so much to me and so much to so many people. But it's also a very weird thing to know that you've peaked, right? Now, I, I, that's not me being uh, a Debbie Downer or, or being pessimistic or anything. I think it's just me being realistic, right? What could I do that will be more impactful to myself and others than, than what I've just done? Now, that's not to say that nothing I do is worth it anymore. Far from it. There is plenty of things that I will find fulfillment from, that I do find fulfillment from, that will be exciting and worth doing and, and driving towards. But I don't think anything will have the same peak. You know, If you're graphing your own life, I'm not sure that anything will have the same peak. Can't speak I'm, to having kids. Don't have them. People say that that's yeah. pretty great. But I'm I think gonna, it's I'm a gonna weird thing in. to... Yeah, Sorry, sure, go I'm going to jump in. Sorry, I'm... I really feel bad about interrupting people, but <laughs> I think on this occasion, you said you felt that you've peaked. Yeah. I think you've had a peak. Mm-hmm. Get rid of the get rid of the suffix ed. Yeah. I think you've had a peak. No, I, I and, and I agree, but I would I would if I was a betting man, I'd wage that that peak is higher than any other peak. But that to use your own doesn't mean that there won't be other peaks. And I'm really looking forward to those. Don't necessarily know what they are right now. Maybe it's more bobsleigh. Maybe it's something completely different. I will have other peaks. You know, I'm not. I'm not getting down on myself about it. I just also being real that that's probably the highest peak, and that's a weird thing to know. 
I, I'm so grateful that I've had that high peak. So I'm, you know, I'm not, again, I'm not being negative about this. It maybe sounds negative, but I'm not. I'm so grateful to have had that peak and lucky me to have had it, you know, obviously made it myself. So it's not all luck, but you know, a lot of people try really fucking hard at stuff and don't get it, but I've tried hard and I've got this thing. So I've had that peak, but it's also a weird thing to know that it's probably a peak as well. And so that's something that I've been grappling with, but not to the point that it's weighing on me. Um, I think the overriding side in that battle is lucky me. You know, I, I'm excited that for the rest of my life, I will know what that felt like, what that feels like. And I can, you know, if, if other stuff doesn't go well, you know, if I'm in a, in a trough rather than a peak, hopefully, you know, looking back on that and knowing, okay, you know what, I did that thing. That'll, you know, that'll kind of level things out a bit. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fair to say you had a couple of troughs before you got to the oh, peak. Absolutely, I think it was and, predominantly yeah. troughs. <laughs> and also, I I think you're in a, a good position. And we had we had uh, Finn who had rowed across the ocean, and he had a very much yeah fuck it I'll try it mentality. <laughs> and and certainly, I think you have a similar one in terms of right. I am going to give this a bash, and when I give it a bash. I'm going to give it my all. So actually, you are loading the deck right from the start mm. for potential more peaks. And, and yes, I think the Olympics is is such a peak across the world, not just for an individual, but yeah. it is globally the sporting event, probably yeah. only rivaled by the Football World Cup in terms of global viewers and participation. So that's always going to be a massive, massive thing. Unless all of a sudden you, know, you win a Nobel Peace Prize because <laughs> of something. But we are talking these highest level of things. I, I do get it, but I do think you are stacking the deck for achieving other things in the future. And it, it, it's something that most listeners could learn from, that actually if you're going to give something a go, don't. Uh, what is it Yoda says? Do or do not. There is no trying. Well, uh, see, that's that's an interesting one because because I, I know that phrase, but I think there's there's only there's only kind of trying really. So it, it, and that's it, it's a semantic difference uh, yes. uh, for sure. Um, but like I, I, that's that's my big thing is, is is actually really trying. It's something that when I've spoken in schools mm. and stuff, I try and it, impose on them is like, like really really try. Um, because because you, you don't know where, where that might lead, but so th there's this thing that I've I, I think I have maybe even heard it on a podcast. Or I saw it somewhere that it was like a good gauge for success as an adult is whether ten year old you would think that current you is cool or successful or, or interesting. Like, would they want to know current you? Would they think that's that's I'm happy with how it turned out, right? And I think that's a really interesting gauge for, for overall success because yeah. the 10 year old, you know, maybe they want to be rich, but actually they probably have different ideas of what they want to be when they grow up. Now, I think absolutely 10 year old me would be happy with, yeah. with where I've ended up. And so, so in, in that sense, yes, it's, it's this whole, it's been this whole buildup. But then the other thing is that actually Bob Stay wasn't in my life eight years ago, really. Uh, it wasn't. And this is something that I've essentially manifested to mean so much to me. I wanted to be an Olympian as, as 10 years old. I think if you ask that 10 year old, what is the one thing you'd want to do? Yeah. It's probably Olympics above winning the world cup above winning a super bowl. It's been go to the Olympics, right? Not even an Olympic medal, just go to the Olympics. So, you know, that, that 10 year old wanted that, 
But then there's this big span in the middle where it's just like, well, that's that a silly dream that the kid had, right? But I've made it happen. But it, in the same sense, bobsleigh, like I said, is is something that I've essentially just created meaning around. It was not something that I was doing eight years ago, and through giving it a go and really trying, it's it's big, it's grown to mean so much to me, and in that sense, created this high peak. So what's to say that I can't? create meaning around the next thing that is equal or, or close to what bobsleigh and the Olympics has meant to me in this sport. You know, you can, you can create those kind of scenarios. Like if you're in, and I can't even think of an example at the moment, but like if you're in a different world and it means enough to you, and there's this thing at the end of it that you really want to accomplish, then it may well be as every bit as impactful as the Olympics was to me in bobsleigh. But that's something that's important to me. There's so many people to which the Olympics are like, oh, okay, right, cool. You know, and it just not really fussed about. But in our world, as, as you know, interested in sport, it's like, how can you not love the Olympics? But there's plenty of people that j- just don't care, that would rather have you know, their, their painting displayed or their music heard or whatever it might be that actually, you know, what's to say you can't kind of create something else, sport or not sport, that is just as impactful. I think I went through a few thoughts whilst you were talking there. And my first thought was just look over your right shoulder and yeah. see what's hanging in the background. You know yeah. what's there. I've got it tattooed on my arm as well. Yeah, exactly. And for the, as, for those as not well being able should, to see yeah. this, it's the Olympic rings for those yeah. that can't see. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's the Olympic rings hanging from the wall, and as well it should be. You should be yeah. proud of that. But yeah. then you're absolutely right because people who make works of art and make amazing pieces of music—that's their—that's their thing, mm. isn't it? Yeah, but I think everybody would be able to say that person has worked hard to create that painting, mm. to make that masterpiece of music, to achieve going to the Olympics. It's not a handed out thing. It's not, oh, here you go. Here's a five. I go to the Olympics. You know, you have to work. Yeah, it's not a raffle. Hard. <laughs> no, it's not a raffle. You know, I think even if you have no interest in sport, mm. you would go, oh, I'm aware of the Olympics. I know the world's best go to the Olympics. So actually, even if I don't give a rat's ass about bobsleigh or the Olympics, I can appreciate that, oh, you're pretty good at this then, to have gone to the Olympics. Yeah, and and, and that's true. And, and that's that's a really rewarding thing is those little interactions that that actually it's just another race. You know, and it's in its purest form, it is just another sliding down a hill on ice right but what it means is is so much bigger and it it means so much to so many other people and that's what's been really rewarding is is those interactions post games that are now so much uh bigger and more impactful because you can put this you know the three letters after your name or whatever you call yourself an olympian that actually it means so much to so many other people i was doing it for my reasons and if nobody cared, I still would have done it. And it's it's almost surprising to me that people do care. Genuinely, genuinely, it is surprising that anyone gives a crap. I bet your local town's newspaper had a picture of you and a write up in its local newspaper. Oh, it was it was it was it's everywhere around my hometown. Like I'm the first Olympian from my school, which genuinely surprised me. Really, like a big school that's very successful. I genuinely. I was surprised as the first Olympian. They asked me to speak at, you know, to kind of host their awards evening, which was something that as a student, 
I only got to w- once right at the end of my time there and always saw as just the awards evening as being something that I'd never really achieve. And then there I was, you know, hosting the thing. It's, it's meant a lot to a lot of people. And, and what's been so surprising is, is how far those branches reach, right? So like, you know, friends of my parents and stuff like that, that are, that are super interested in watching two man bobsleigh all of a sudden, because they know somebody whose kid was there, right? Like those branches and those interactions that have happened since they're so rewarding. And like, I've never been recognized, but in Harrogate, a couple of times now, people have said, hang on, are you Axel Brown? Can I get a photo and stuff like that is mad to me because like I said, all I do is slide down a hill, but I've been doing it for for my own reasons. I've been doing it for for my own things. And to, to, to your point about it being difficult and people knowing that it's difficult, and it was, it was incredibly difficult, but I think that's such a relative term in itself, like so much stuff is really difficult and it's so relative to the person, right? To someone going through, I don't know, chemotherapy, just getting up in the morning is fucking hard. To to so many people, so many things are really, really difficult. Probably harder than what I've been through to do this thing. The only thing that separates what I've accomplished and what they've accomplished or accomplishing is the fact that mine's on the TV, that's really the only the only difference like that's not to say that my thing is any harder than what other people are going through you know i i've done something that's hard and i've pushed myself to to do as absolutely best i can but so many people are facing so many challenges that they're really trying their best at but then therein comes that mentality of do i really fucking go for this or do I, you know, resign myself to it or, or whatever? And I think that's what separates people. But I think the only thing that actually separates what I've accomplished and succeeded at from what other people accomplish and succeed at is that mine's on the TV. Mm. Yeah, and you didn't do it for fame. You did it for the pursuit of doing well in the sport, not to become a famous person. 100%. And it's, it's what I've said, uh, alluded to earlier and said, said to other athletes, if you're in bobsleigh for the fame, get out, you're in the <laughs> wrong place. <laughs> cause, cause no one, unless you're, unless you're, you know, um, Chris Stokes from the original cool runnings or whatever, like no one cares. Do, do you know what? I'm amazed. And I, I've deliberately kept it <laughs> and I was going to keep it till the end. It's been an hour and a half. And cool runnings have been mentioned for the first time. <laughs> oh, I avoided it on purpose. Yeah. Absolutely tried to avoid it. Well, so, because but, this is your own story. This yeah, it's not, it's not, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's an interesting one. In in the British setup, there was this idea of you don't talk about cool racks. You don't mention it, you don't talk about it. And and the, the reluctance there was because it's seen as amateur, right? Um, and, and I got not in hot water, but I know it rubbed a couple of people up the wrong way when I had an interview pre-games where I said that you know, the, the, the Jamaican team, they were there for the love of it, but they weren't very good. Now, that, that's that's an objective fact. I wasn't very good. We came 27th. Yeah. If you're talking about good in the objective term, we weren't good, right? But we had fun and we enjoyed it. And, and in the scheme of things, we were very good because we we're at the Olympics, right? But Cool Runnings is the reason our sport exists, right? maybe literally, but it's certainly the reason it exists on the scale that it does. And that it's almost the blue ribbon event of the Olympics is the four man bobsleigh. That and the downhill are pretty much the blue ribbon event of the Olympics. And we owe that to cool runnings. And so for me, yes, you've got this idea that when you're compared to cool runnings, it might be seen as being amateur or not being good at bobsleigh. 
But actually, we owe that. We owe their legacy and that movie a debt of gratitude because chances are we wouldn't be doing what we're doing without it. And we certainly wouldn't have the interest in our sport without that. So I welcome the comparisons to Cool Runnings because if I have even 1% of the notoriety of that movement, I'm doing damn well. Yeah, I guess when you rocked up in Trinidad and Tobago said, do you fancy coming and doing a bobsled team? You know, like cool runnings, I guess it opens the door, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. But it, in that instance, absolutely. But it opens the door to so many people. Most people on the street, their one watermark for what bobsleigh is, is that movie. Yeah. You know, and that's the one kind of, you say, bobsleigh, and they may, may maybe give you a bit of a weird look. And they're like, do you know cool runnings? And they're like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, that. Pretty much exactly, because it's Trinidad and Tobago and all of that. And and people's faces light up because they know it, and they know it in a good context. That actually, again, we just owe it a debt of gratitude. It's, an, it's a resoundingly positive movie, positive story, and it's had a positive impact on us to this day as athletes. So, yeah, I kind of, I think it's like a bit, get over yourself. If, you, if, you, if you're worried about being compared to get, Cool Runnings, get over yourself, because it's a thousand times bigger than you are would be my, you know, kind of attitude to anyone that scoffs at it. It's a thousand times bigger and, and brings a thousand times more people enjoyment than whatever you're doing. Yeah, I totally agree. And the only reason I mentioned it, and well, you mentioned it, then I picked up <laughs> yeah. um, is because I know you've said in previous interviews and conversations that you're totally happy with, yeah. with the comparisons. Yeah. <laughs> and I also, and I've got on my, <coughs> on my screen here, um, the Eddie the Eagle Edwards film with Taron yeah. Egerton. In terms of what you described earlier, in terms of having to almost build your own training <laughs> facilities because you didn't yeah. have any funding, and anyone who's seen that film is that is that the reality of it? Building oh, absolutely pictures in your back back on absolutely, and and I'd say that probably stories like his, theirs, and, and indeed mine are far more common than, than most people would, would realise mm -hmm. that a lot of it is people having to take things into their own hands, either because it doesn't exist or because it exists in the wrong form or with the wrong people, that actually a lot of the time people have to take things into their own hands just to make it happen, whether that's for their own um, goals, whether that's, you know, for the good of the people around them, that a lot of people have to take it into their own hands. You know, Eddie the Eagle was, was laughed at for even trying. I was literally laughed at for even trying. I was told categorically, I will not be able to do this by some people that I respect, some people that I absolutely don't respect. But the resounding thing was, don't bother you it's almost impossible right and that's always the first act of these movies isn't it that, that it's like don't bother like you, you're a, you're a dreamer you like give it a rest you know and and there, there was there was that people from from people very close to me even though they maybe didn't say it you know they were still being supportive there's an attitude of like really like are you sure you can do this you know so, so my dad's a very mathematical person and he was always like, so what do you reckon the chances are like, you know, in, in terms of percentages? And I would do the same thing with myself. What's my realistic percentage chance of making this? And, and that's because there's an inherent skepticism in whether we were able to pull it off. And you see that with these other people that have had stories made about them. But I would imagine that it's, it's prolific within Olympic sport, especially. Um, I, would, I would imagine that there's dozens of people with very similar stories that are told, no, don't bother, don't even try. Or, or people that yeah. really care and, and are, are positive, just that want the best for the athlete, being like, 
are you sure about that? Because, you know, I experienced everything on that scale. I think actually, and, and this is a weird thing that I've only kind of just realized, I don't know that there's anybody that said, yeah, you can do that. Maybe one guy, and that was, that was my coach, I think, um, that, that kind of has, has always been on a distance, at a distance, and was actually the coach in GB that selected me to not go to the last Olympics. But I think he's the only person that said, like, yeah, you, you probably could. It's going to be hard, but you probably could. And I think everybody else met it with skepticism. And, and I was probably, you know, the only one with the vision. And, and again, that's so uh, common in these stories is, is the person that has the vision. And it's a weird thing to look back on knowing that actually, oh, yeah, no, shit, that, that was me, that I, I had this vision of what I was able to do and what I would be able to do. I was under no illusions of how hard it would be, uh, but that actually I was probably the only one that really saw it. And that the more I did and the more that then we did as a team, the more people got on board, but that actually everyone's first instinct, understandably, was skepticism. Mm. Or, or downright, like, you know, just kind of denial, like, you won't do it. Not even skepticism, like, no, steadfast, you won't do it. I've got, I got a comment that was left on my Instagram account, like, literally telling me I'll never get to the Olympics. Well. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can, you can eat that. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I guess it's quite a – I guess there's not that many coaches – or experienced coaches in the UK who know how to coach people in bobsleigh? No, and, and you know, there's this instance. Because it's, it's, it's not a massive sport. No, you have to. Let's, let's you have be to, honest. Yeah. Really, you have to have done bobsleigh for a significant amount of time yeah. um, to, to do it. And I think the reason my, my coach and I hit, so he was actually, he was coaching a different team, um, the, the British women's team, all of last season. Um, but I knew like he and I had been working together from a distance and everybody was kind of uh, okay with that within the system. Like, and and so he was coaching me kind of over the phone and stuff, but because he's been in some way part of my bobsleigh journey since the very first year, you know, he just as a coach that was part of the program. So he's known about me to um, his son's best friend. Then I, I, you know, ended up on my team. He was brought in through bobsleigh, and, and so we've had these things that link us together. And and like I said, there's been times where I'm like, "Fuck that guy! He didn't pick me," and he's he's been the focus of of, of anger at, at times for me. But the, I think through that and and through us kind of constantly crossing paths again, he I think understands me better than anyone outside of the athletes that I work with. Um, and, and understands that when I say something, when I say why, I'm not saying, you know, like we said, right at the top, that's not me questioning in a negative sense. That's me trying to understand. He knows my tendencies as an introvert. He knows my nuances and stuff outside of Bobsley and also knows what I'm capable of. And I think that's so important in a coach-athlete relationship that actually he, he I think, knows me and, and knows how to get through to me and, and knows that actually if he just tells me that was really shit, that I'm not going to take it personally, that I'm going to take that separately. Whereas he's got in trouble with other people for saying that was shit and then they've gone away and, and taken it personally. And I think that, that kind of bond, that kind of relationship is, is really important. And he's probably the only person that actually, because he's been to six Olympics, three as an athlete, three as a coach, like he knows what it takes. I knew that, that I had it in me, both as an athlete and as a business owner, essentially. Um, but everybody, almost everybody else, um, whether they wanted to believe in me or not, 
probably didn't at some point, including myself. You know, there was times when I doubted it, mm. but I think the overriding feeling was like, I know I can pull this off. I just have to either show or convince everybody else that it's possible. What does a bobsleigh coach coach? Is it and that's that's technique? that's a tricky yeah. thing in itself because like we've said about athletes having to be holistic, you have to, you know, you're living together with other athletes. More often than not, it's certainly at the scale that we're at, you're living with your coach as well. So my coach, I didn't have a coach last season, by the way, which is an interesting thing. So it was literally just just me doing the thing. Mm. We had an ice coach. So there's the, the person that was just laid on by the IBSF, a guy called Brian Burkhorn, great guy, um, really got along with him. Um, but that is an ice coach that teaches you how to steer the corners, how to do the sport of bobsleigh as a driver, how to steer when, how to correct what you're doing, those kinds of things that, you know, that's inherent in the sport. Um, but I think a good coach, which, you know, I, I think, I think Lee genuinely is, um, goes beyond that and, and can teach you, teach you about being a leader, teach you about uh, organizing your team, teach the team about dealing with me as a pilot. Right. And, and all of those things and, and knows the sled inside out as well, because that's another thing. Like we are, we are our own mechanics. We have this vehicle that we have to maintain and try and get the absolute best out of, you know, when you see an F1 garage full of people, we're having to try and do the same thing, but by ourselves. So if you've got a coach that knows those things, like I know my sled inside out, I know that he knows it inside out and we can bounce ideas off each other. Whereas when I'm doing that by myself, it's kind of, I think I know what I'm doing and I hope that this idea works, but let's find out. Whereas obviously when you've got a couple of people, you can bounce those ideas off. And in the bigger teams, they've got numerous coaches. So you might have a, you know, a pure ice coach. You've then got a head coach and you've got a, you know, a physiotherapist and stuff like that. But in our team, so when I talk about a coach, it's the ice coach primarily. That's what I'm employing the person for. Um, but then they become more than that um, by, by the nature of, being away and, and the, the the different arms that exist in bobsleigh outside of the ice how do you train what what's important what's not important what speed what, speed and strength basically are, are our two okay. main things whilst maintaining weight you know there's plenty of people that are really fast there's plenty of people that are really strong there's plenty of people that are really heavy but combining those three things is is what's important you need to take a 170 kilo sled that's at a dead stop and accelerate it to the highest speed you possibly can load in the sled and then be heavy basically. Yeah. So, so heavy, fast, strong. Pretty much. Yeah. So all of our training is based around that. It's a mixture of sprint, sprint stuff and, and power based things in the gym. So mm -hmm. you want to be strong, pretty much you, you need to have tree trunk legs. That's kind of the, the big thing, uh, what, which a lot of people might not realize, but you know, that's where you're generating your power. Your whole upper body is rigid in a bobsleigh push, or it should be, you know, cause that is, you're holding onto a bar. So you're holding your whole upper body rigid. There's no arm movement. You just need to be able to lock that out and then generate force through your legs. So for people to put that in context, what sort of numbers are we talking about in terms of squat and deadlift, that sort of thing? Sure. So obviously only talking to kind of the, the, the men's team here, but you need to be able to, to move 200 kilos on a back squat. Whether you don't necessarily need to be able to hold that weight all year round, you know, if that's a peak, then great. But you need to, to be able to, within a couple of weeks, let's say you just go away and train, you need to be able to put 200 kilos on your back and, and squat that. Is, is a good metric. Some people can't, some people can. I think a, a better uh, 
test for being a good bobsledder is taking 140 and moving that really fast and really effectively. But you also, you need to be able to take the whole weight of a sled, like I said, 170 kilos and move that. Because if you're out of sync on a hit or whatever, you need to be able to, to move the thing yourself. So that's, that's a good metric. Um, speed wise, we mentioned about the, the 60 yard sprint is a, again, a good metric. And realistically you need to be below seven seconds for that kind of thing. Deadlifting is a tricky one. Doesn't necessarily correlate to, to bobsled. I would say clean without the jerk is, is another good one. So I would say most elite bobsledders will clean 130 to 140. Um, I is that power or squat? Yeah, power clean, power clean generally. We don't, I mean, I never really train anything below parallel. Um, I squat to a box which is parallel for me. Um, because I'm, I'm never down there. I'm never in that position in bobsled. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a power clean, realistically, when I clean, it's more like a muscle clean, <laughs> which isn't necessarily a good thing. But I also can't I can't clean 130, 140. My best is 120. Um, but I can muscle clean 120, right? So I can just get that off the ground quick, snappy, move it. So there's no way. technique there. It's just pure... Well, that's, that's been my issue again. Sure. Like I only took to, to weights training age 23. So I, and in, I was in such a rush to get ready for bobsleigh that I was like, look, I can, I can take the time to learn how to clean properly or whatever, or I could use those same hours to going actually right to, to maximal lifts on other things and grow my strength because anyone that's done Olympic lifting knows that you actually have to, you have to train so much before you're ever actually training your muscles. You have to put in hours and hundreds of hours of work before you're actually at a point where you're pushing your muscular strength. And so my idea there was like, look, I'm going to have to put in that 100 hours or I could take 100 hours of just back squatting, hex bar deadlifting, leg pressing, plyo work that is going to have far more direct impact to bobsleigh. And so as a result, I've never really learned to Olympic lift particularly efficiently. And do you get a program given out by your federation or is that something you have to go work out yourself? Again, you know, certainly currently with Trinidad and Tobago, there's nothing. And I mean, nothing other than what I create in the British program. Uh, when it was funded, we had access to SNC, we had access to, to gyms and stuff like that. Um, Team GB has a thing that if you're um, in their gold club, essentially, if you if they think you're, you've been to Olympics or could go to Olympics, you can get these different tiers of membership that can get you into a gym or whatever. But no, for the most part in bobsleigh, it's down to the athlete themselves. Now I mentioned earlier that I got cut from the team, but essentially everybody gets cut every year and you have to earn your way back on, onto the team through those physical tests. But the onus for that is on the athlete themselves. It's, it's up to them to come back to those tests in shape. If you don't, you're not on the team. Right. And so every athlete will approach it slightly differently. There's, there's common knowledge or what's considered common knowledge. I actually hate that as a phrase, but you know, there's, there's things that just work. Being strong is one of them. How you get there is different yeah. than individual to every athlete being fast. You have to be, but how you get there for me as a 110 kilo athlete, for me getting fast is going to be completely different to an 80 kilo sprinter that's been sprinting their whole lives right you know and and they're going to have to get strong and i'm going to have to get fast and those things are so individual that yes you can get some core principles but i think for the most part it works best when each athlete can do things by themselves and then you come together for the bobsleigh specific things like pushing and, and things like that that are a skill cool yeah i, I think it's 
quite reassuring for me. I'm not. I'm nowhere near. I'm 85, 85 kilos. That's mm-hmm. about where I am and where I've been for a while now, probably for the last 10 years. It's, it's, it's where I'm happy. Um, but being, being able to be fast and strong at even at 85 kilos, which would mm-hmm. be considered, oh, you're, you're, too, you're too heavy to be fast. Yeah. It's reassuring <laughs> that yeah. there's a way. Yeah. Yeah. And it is possible, but I think it's easier to take a fast person and make them strong than the inverse. I'd say, Um, I think, I think the speed and and raw speed, you have to be outside of your own head. If you're Mm. thinking about running fast, chances are you're going to be slow. And I think it's one of those things that you have to really have been doing for years. Like I mentioned about Olympic lifting, even it's something that you need hundreds thousands of hours of doing and i'm fortunate in the sense that though i never really had any formal sprint training i've always taken to running quick and always enjoyed it and always kind of sort that out so i've always been running quick and it's interesting it came up um, i saw a, a picture of me at a school sports day because i'm going back to that school to work and and i have pretty good i have pretty good knee drive you know my, my foot's in the right position and that's me as a kid so you know and that's because I put value in it. I, I enjoyed doing it and wanted to do it well and, and also have, you know, a, a long stride and stuff that's helped me out for sure. I think my cadence is is probably similar to most fast people. I just combine that with very long legs. Um, and But I've also engaged with it. You can take someone out of the gym that could, again, talking about Olympic lifting, you could take somebody that can clean 160 kilos and ask them to run quick probably tear their hamstrings off first off but you know it, it's a completely different skill one that takes so long to learn where actually if you take a fast person you just put them on a leg press put them in a squat it's much easier to get them moving weight there than it is yeah. to take someone that's strong and, and teach them the skill of running fast and that uh, that's a, a really interesting one with with crossfit so there's been several big name crossfitters none none bigger than tia claire Toomey, that have tried bobsled and really struggled and that's, you know, I, I reckon some of the hardest working athletes in the world, if not the hardest working athletes in the world. Um, and they're incredibly powerful. Their power to weight ratios are, in, are incredible. You know, they're, they're Olympic lifters in their own right. They can move weight. But actually, when you've asked them to sprint and sprint behind a bobsleigh and stuff, they've, they've really struggled to learn that as a skill. And I think that highlights that it, that it really is a skill. And you see a lot of people come in that actually struggle because they can't run quick enough. So that's that's a new one for Dave Castro, isn't it? To put the bobsleigh into the CrossFit Games. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they had they had something. I saw something similar at a recent competition that they were calling the bobsleigh. But they yeah, had, um, I mean, yeah. there's the famous clip of of Matt Fraser doing the sprint race, and they're asking, "What can't this guy do?" And I'd be really interested to know, like, literally how fast he's running there. Um, so the year before that one, his sprint was terrible, and he went yeah. to a high school and was training with their 16, 17 year old sprint team to learn how to sprint because he couldn't do it the year before. And then you saw the progress that he made in that year. And, you know, sprinting is a really highly technical sport. Oh oh yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, in its purest sense, it's run from here to there, but 
and and you get people that just inherently do the right thing. I mean, like I said, primary school, me had good knee drive. So that's never something that I've ever really had to work on. There's plenty of other stuff that I had to work on, but there's something that I had. But I think so many people, so some people have it all just straight out the bat and, you know, good for them. But some people also don't have any of that and just, yeah. you know, Bambi on ice when they, when they start to run. And so it doesn't matter how strong they are. If you've got no running efficiency and no top speed, you can't transfer that strength. May as well not have it. Mm. Were your parents athletic or sporty? Um, yeah, I mean, and I think the important thing, so my, my dad um, always enjoyed sport. Um, he always liked the idea of doing decathlon, and there's actually a lot of decathletes in bobsleigh, um, but never never went to an upper level at anything. Um, he's been an age group um, triathlete for Great Britain, so is my brother. Um, my brother was kind of on the cusp of of going to the next level with with triathlon but sadly never made it but i think the important thing is that actually our reward structure was always heavy on sport you know if i'd come home with my grade one recorder probably wouldn't have meant anything to anyone really um just in our household but if i come home with first place in the sports day whatever it was then that's going on the door and you know, and that's going to stay there for several years. So it's just a reward structure that's been ex- that existed in in our family and our extended family. You yeah. know, my my cousin's part of the England netball setup, and she's been widely considered too small to do it. But I think it's a similar thing of just like we've always valued sport, we've always enjoyed sport, and we've always you know tried tried at it. And I think you know that's just what it's been like in our household. If I'd grown up in a household that, that valued the grade one recorder and the the first at um, sports day, okay, cool, put your sticker in the bin. Who cares? Like I'd have probably, you know, maybe I'd have been a musician, right? I think it's just that I've grown up around valuing sport and you know what kid doesn't want to make their parents proud. So if that's what they're that's what they yeah. want, you know, that's what they're excited about, then yeah. that's what you're going to end up doing as a kid, right? It's it's yeah. funny, isn't it? We're, obviously, we're not talking to musicians we're not talking to people who have excelled in any type of artistic um pursuits yeah but it would be interesting to find out whether people who were really good at recorder in school mm. whether there's any correlation between that and going on to be a world famous musician I, th- I think it, it, there's going to be, you know, if you just naturally click with something, but I think that, yeah, the, the stronger trend is the teachers, the people that are around them, their friends, their family, those things, and, and how those people react to it. Because we're so impressionable, aren't we, when we're young, that actually if someone's like, like calls you an idiot for doing something or whatever, you really hold on to that. Equally, if someone gives you praise for that thing, then then you you go for it and you you try and seek more of those endorphins. And so, you know, if if you bring home that whatever it is. For me, it was, okay, I never didn't win a sports day event, right? That was like my thing. Um, and and so really, you know, and, or had all of these first place stickers on the door, um, but that was because it meant something to me and it meant something to the to the people that were around me. But I think if that had been something else, then, you know, yeah. who knows? Yeah, I think um, I'm just being cynical about the fact that every time I played the recorder, it just sounded shit. I think what's really interesting is is looking at the other people that are the best in the world at their thing yeah. and and being able to admire it and say you know what actually that's you know good for them because you know how hard it is to do that it's completely different yeah. to sport but actually 
I, I think I have a good idea of how hard that is to do and to be at that level for their thing. Yeah. There's there's a lot of comparisons there, and there's this thing of like, you know, rappers want to be athletes and athletes want to be rappers and that that kind of thing. And but I think actually there's this idea of um, everyone that's at the top of their game, and there was an element of this at the Olympics. Everybody that's there is the top of their game, and you just like I know I'm never going to be a skier or a figure skater or whatever, but I know what that, that has taken for them to get there in their arena. And um, yeah, I think it's a cool thing to be at the top of my particular skill mm. and to be complacent enough within that to be like, you know what, good for them yeah, for doing their thing. Is it, is it a case of if you're at the top of your particular sport, looking at someone else who's at the top of a different sport that has, you know that you couldn't do and you couldn't be at that level. It's the mm. same as looking at someone who is a musician or an actor or an actress being at the top of their game it's just yeah. a different thing oh for, for sure so i met um some of the high i don't i can't remember the name of the actual event the high flying skiers the ones that go up and just go off a mad ramp and do flips and all of that yeah, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. aerials or something right yeah so I, I met a couple of them when i was doing media down in beijing and um it was a great thing we got talking because we would trade the pins and i was chatting to them and i was like dude what you guys do is insane and they're like there's a couple of Aussie guys and I won't even attempt the accent but they're like nah what you do is nuts I'd go off the <laughs> ramp 10 times before I go down a bob stay track and I think that that really like told told a lot like I'm looking at them and thinking fuck that that's mental <laughs> they're looking at what I'm doing and like that's mental but to the same extent like I think everybody yeah. that's that knows what it takes to be the best at something also knows that that translates across the board for the most part. And some people try and gatekeep over the idea that what they've done is harder than what other people do. And that I think is super obnoxious, but I think yeah. for the most part, people know, okay, what I've been through is hard, but what they've been through is hard as well. It's just different. Mine was no, not necessarily harder. Theirs was not necessarily easier, whatever. Right. Um, I think for the most part, you know, there's that phrase, real recognizes real. And I like to think that that's the majority. You have the minority that want to say, oh, no, mine's way more difficult and I deserve recognition because I'm better. Nah, get over yourself, you know? Yeah, fuck them. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and that's, oh, that's, that, but that's everything, isn't it? That's not just elite sport. You have people oh, yeah, yeah. everywhere, <laughs> everywhere. And it's like, okay, right, you're, you're trying to make up for something. I don't know what has hurt you, but you're trying to make up for something by making other people feel worse. Like, just grow up. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> are there are there kind of I won't put a number in, but are there key things that you have or and will take from your Olympic experience and, and the process that's taken to get there and being there that will propel forwards into your you know the or interweave into your life? Um, yeah, I mean, first off, just running a business, right? I've had to run a business that turns over a hundred grand a year just to do the business of bobsleigh just to not run a loss and and that's that's a hard thing to do in itself and you know we've got to make sure that everything is insured properly and everything's done you know you're speaking to the right people and all of those things that are so far removed from competitive sport that actually you know if i could just 
change the focus of that and be running a, a business that has 100k revenue every year that's that's pretty uh, that would be pretty useful as well um leadership certainly and and my style of leadership is not dictatorial or anything because i know that as an athlete i absolutely hated that it's not you know do this yes sir no sir all of that far from it it's it's i think about inspiring people to want to work with you not necessarily for you and with you and, and that kind of thing, or at least feeling like that they are. Um, those skills, absolutely. Um, but I think something with Bob Say and certainly with, with things at the highest level is that I've seen really what I'm capable of. And, and that's, again, quite a nice thing to know, that when I really try, I'm capable of pretty incredible things and that you know that sounds almost too big-headed but it, it it's something that i'm i'm proud of like I've, I've accomplished this thing and if i can accomplish that it took everything but if i put that amount of effort and that amount of focus on something else that i'm confident that you know it's not going to be without incident but i'm confident that i can reach it in the end and so i think the the the, the biggest thing is is yeah is that self-confidence and self-belief that actually yeah I don't know what that next thing might be, but that I'm confident that when I do find it or find something that leads to it, that I'll, that I'll be able to really do quite well at it. Yeah, fantastic. It's interesting you said you said that just in terms of <laughs> this might sound big-headed, as you, as you said, but I don't think it does at all. I actually okay. think it's the opposite. I think it's really modest. And I think right. the way you've talked about the journey you've been on, I think you have been modest. Really I think modest. you've been confident and understood what it's taken and what what it's what you've needed to be and how you've needed to how you've needed to be to get to where you've gone. Yeah, but I don't think confidence and understanding what's required and understanding where you've had to go isn't big headedness no well that's i mean that's that's good to know i think that's probably born of a couple of things one as a teenager i was i would say i was pretty arrogant um and I think that's born of natural ability. And I think you see this certainly in sport. You know, it's the one thing I can speak to, that people that are naturally good at things get this idea of entitlement because they are naturally better than the people at the thing that they're doing. And so get this idea that they are better than other people, just inherently, inside or outside of sport. They have this idea, I'm better than most people. And, and so often in sport, they're surrounded by yes men, you know, the people that want to tell them you're the best see it in American football a lot, but I'm sure you'd see it in, in soccer just the same, that, that people are told, yes, you're the best, come this way, and that people that are trying to please them because they're good at this sport. And so they get this idea that they are genuinely better than the next person on the street because they're good at sport. Well, no, you, you're better at sport, sure. That doesn't make you a better person. That takes work as well. You know, being a good person, being having humility and, and stuff like that takes just as much work as being a good sports person. But so often people don't have that. Um, yeah. I got humbled with American football and, and in my academics within a couple of years, you know, I went from being able to just naturally give that a go, be better than most people at it to all of a sudden I've reached the peak of that. I reached the cap of that rather and got humbled pretty hard. And I think that made me, 
you know, it caused a lot of introspection. I needed to to come out of that and realize, you know, what it what it takes to become better and that, that I'm not any better than the next person or anything like that. Uh, but I can make myself better at this one thing or at other things by, you know, doing certain taking certain steps to get there, but that it doesn't just exist. You have to work for it, both as an athlete and as a person. You have to work at being better. Um, but then the other thing is like when the when the doors are closed and the lights are off, like it doesn't matter how loud you're shouting. It doesn't matter how like how many people are listening or not listening. You've got to be confident within yourself and that you've got to remove yourself from needing other people's impact on how you feel. You know, if, if it's if you only feel good when other people are recognizing you, then you're going to be constantly chasing that drug. And so I, I'm not looking to impress anybody. I'm glad that I am and I'm happy that I am, but that's not where my motivation is. The only person I want to impress is myself in the sense that I want to be happy with the person in the mirror. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time when you're actually doing the shouting, nobody cares. No. And and there's that thing of like the louder you shout, like you're trying to convince people. Um, you know, and there's there's that thing of like I said, the comment that said you'll never make it to the Olympics. I didn't need to to point anything out, you know. It just literally me being on that start line was a middle finger to everybody that ever doubted it. But I don't need to say that. They know. Yeah. Yep. They know. <laughs> there's no way they don't know that I'm there. They know there's no way that they've forgotten that how they felt about me in that moment. They know. So I don't need to say anything. Yeah, you don't need to call them out individually. You don't need to rub their nose in the floor. They know. Yeah. Because yeah it's happened and, and i think that's i think that's much more powerful as well like if you agreed if you speak to somebody and, and they find out about you or, or find out about the things that you've done organically rather than you be like hey look i'm an olympian i did this i did that which unfortunately is what so much of social media is if people find that out themselves that's so much more impactful yeah agreed yeah agreed very much so um I'm conscious of the time. Yeah. And we're very grateful for your time. <laughs> it's all good. Sean, is there anything else you want to ask or say? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, no, I'm just looking. I'm, <laughs> it's always, it's, it's quite interesting to watch the clock behind Paul's head. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes That's I, the only way I've known the time, to be fair. Is sometimes sometimes acts as a sort of halo. <laughs> yeah. When his head's positioned correctly, um, I, if I hadn't a glance at the time, I wouldn't have known two hours over two hours have passed because it's been such a good conversation. Where can people find you, Axel? Um, it's the Axel Brown on pretty much everything YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, but I don't really use that. Um, yeah, and then Axe Racing uh, YouTube channel is a is a good one to check out because that's where I kind of explain things bobsleigh. Um, you know, that's it. I'm populating that at the moment, but those are those are the bigger bigger avenues basically. Fantastic. Um, thank you very much for your time. Yeah. Uh, I love all your mini figures <laughs> that are behind you, the Lego mini yeah. figures. And what are your trainers? So there's people that can't see. There's a stack of trainers. Yeah, so we've got mostly uh, Nike Air Jordan ones. Um, they, they're, they're on a shelf because they're they're looked after. I do wear them, um, but there's there's one pair that I got that I'm holding on to just because I can't. I mean, I, I bought them at retail and they're now worth ten times that. So I I can't bring myself to put them on my feet. But the other ones I do wear, and yeah, I just keep them up here because 
they're they're objects of art as well as uh, as well as footwear. So I keep them kind of on display for myself. So my son would like to play with all your Lego, and I'm pretty sure Paul Warrior would want to play with all your trainers. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. Oh, he's, <laughs> his his collection now does mine. Yeah, I'm I'm jealous of his chunky donkeys. That's for sure. That's yeah, for, for anyone that knows that knows trainers. Yeah. He's he's ruined them though. He's they, but, but I'm glad that he wears them. Like yeah, who exactly. else is doing burpees in chunky donkeys? I bet nobody. <laughs> yeah, truth. It is truth. Yeah. There's a, there's that track by JME, and he says, uh, "I want to wear them out, but not wear them out." Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, sure. <laughs> cool. Thank you, Axel. Um, I'm yeah, going to stop. No yeah, all good. <laughs>